0: welcome back dude and dudettes to another wild episode of send it mate we're here to talk about all things hunting and outdoors and today we've got something that'll keep your gear running smoother than a dingo's getaway
1: that's right our show is brought to you by high caliber the gun and knife all company that knows how to keep your firearms and blades in tip-top shape
2: high caliber is like the secret sauce for hunters anglers and outdoorsy folk everywhere it's like the magic potion that makes your gun and knives happier than a dog with two tails
0: You know guys, I've been using high calibre oil for a while now, and let me tell you, it's the duck's nuts. My rifle practically sings a lullaby when I take it out hunting.
1: And speaking of lullabies, ever tried sneaking up on a deer with a squeaky gun? It's a prime way to end up with no venison in the freezer. You'll be hungrier than a vegan at a bacon festival.
2: Absolutely. But with high calibre oil, your gun will be quieter than a ninja in moonlight. You'll be stalking your prey with the grace and stealth of a mountain lion.
0: High Calibre doesn't just keep things quiet, it also prevents rust and corrosion, so you won't find your gear looking like it's spent a season at the bottom of a creek.
1: That's right, and for you knife enthusiasts out there, High Calibre has got you covered too. Your trusty blade will slice through anything smoother than butter on a hot biscuit.
2: So folks, don't let your gear
0: become a rusty squeaky mess. Head on over to highcaliber.com.au and grab a bottle of their oil today. And if you use the code SEND IT MATE at checkout, you'll get a special discount. I say again use the code SEND IT MATE for all your oil slick stealthy hunting
1: needs. Thanks to High Calibre, you'll be sending it in style and silence. So, gear
2: up, oil up, and send it. High Calibre, the ultimate oil for the ultimate hunter.
0: Welcome, 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 all you good dude and dudettes. I'm Josh. I'm Caleb. And I'm Couchy. Welcome to another episode of Senate Mate Podcast. And today, we have another guest for you, which I'm very excited to hear from, to be honest.
1: We're racking them up. I like I like having guests. We're, yeah, same. <laughs> it's better than here and
0: used to, that's for sure. It's a welcome break from
1: your rubbish sometimes. but
0: Definitely, definitely. It gets a little little dry in the well when it's just talking between the three of us over and over and over again. Is that why we only see each other once a week now? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, well. Anyway, today's guest is Calum O'Grady. Hi, how's it going, guys?
1: Happy to have you on. Firstly, how was your day? What did you get up to, Calum?
3: I've had a pretty chilled day, actually. Um, I went to the doctors, did some bits and bobs. Yeah, no, I've actually had a really, really sedentary day for me. It's been just relaxing.
1: Fair enough. I so saw, I saw you had a bit of uh, tattoo work done recently.
3: Uh, yep. That's one of the reasons why I've been relaxing. Yeah, I just had a pretty traumatic <laughs> tattoo finished. So, yeah, no, no gym for the past few days. But it's almost done now. It's pretty much, pretty much finished. Just had my arm. No. Coloured in.
0: But it's all, all black, is it? What does it mean? Or is it tribal uh, peace Or
3: Well, to be honest, it doesn't have like a specific meaning. It's not like my birthstone or anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like coal. Uh, so basically, there was work underneath it. I had a series of tattoos I had done when I was in in my 20s by a friend of mine, and I just kind of outgrew it. And I was going to have it lasered, but because it was colour, the laser doesn't bounce off it properly, so it doesn't actually break up the molecules. So, I um denied about it, and then I just thought, you know what? Let's just paint it black. And yeah. I actually really like it to the point now. If I could go back, I'd probably have it done anyway. Yeah. And there was actually a tattoo that was in a film called From Dust Till Dawn. I don't know if you've ever
1: yeah. seen that film.
3: George yeah. Clooney plays the coolest part, a yeah. Zef Gecko, and he's got a bit up his neck. And at the end, he takes his jacket off, and he's got this tribal piece. And obviously, it's really passe now. But I actually did a tattooing apprenticeship when I was in my teens. And that was when it was two years after the film came out and everyone was coming in they were, they were uh, inquiring about the price and stuff. No one ever got it done. And I always thought I'd never have the guts to get it done. And now I've gone and had 10 times as much work. So I was like, <laughs> I've made 15-year-old me really proud. <laughs>
0: Did, was that all in one setting, the, the cover-up?
3: No, I ended up doing three, four-hour sittings to get it done to get it finished up and the last four hour one i had a tattoo there which was my first tattoo when i was 13 that is now just a black circle and i'm gonna have something in white over the top of that oh, so really going nice. to sleep was an absolute bitch i was like ow, ow. <laughs> 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 you know. God, i
1: mean i've got no tattoo so i can't relate on any level but i imagine it would have been painful to sit there and cop all of that
3: uh yeah it tingled for sure i mean so a lot of people get tiny tattoos and say that tattoos don't hurt, but this is like 36 spread. Or I think he used a 24. So it's 24 needles in a row. Yeah. Mm. And it's just four hours of him drilling in ink. And there's a big biker dude that I go to and he just sits there mercilessly <laughs> scrubbing up my arm.
2: What was the uh, most painful part?
3: Oh, for sure. It's like here on the elbow, these little bits. Yeah. The actual oh. elbow itself definitely tingles, but just on the side here,
1: so like your yeah. funny bone sort of thing.
3: Oh, it's, yeah, it's extra special. I mean, it's it's quite painful inside here, but as he was working his way down, it just you could feel it building and building and building. And I just took everything in me just to sit there and breathe out, try and look tough in front of the biker.
1: <laughs> Bloody hell, that's that's
3: commitment. It is, yeah, <laughs> Yeah,
1: whereabouts in uh, our great land can we find you tonight, Callum?
3: I'm currently in Victoria, so down on the south coast in uh, Torquay. Oh, yeah. good spot. Really? My, yeah, my a sister's spot. in
1: Torquay as we speak, as well. Actually, really, yeah. I don't know. I didn't even know why she's there. I just see it on Instagram. This is the thing. Like, <laughs> you don't talk to your sister for a week, and then she pops up in in Torquay. So, well, this is a this nice. is
0: one of the things like keeping up with you, uh, Caleb. Is you move around a lot, and the reason like prior to starting the podcast, I asked where are you? At? You know, at the moment, sort of thing is because one moment you'll be in SA, the next minute you'll be in Darwin, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's quite difficult to be like, oh, where is he?
3: <laughs> yeah, we actually, we talked about me doing it and I was in North and Queens, North uh, and NT. Then we confirmed it and I was in SA and now I'm in Victoria. So <laughs> I've gone from one side of the country to the other in that conversation period.
2: <laughs> oh, well. I've, got, I've got to ask you, what's, uh what takes you around Australia?
3: predominantly work really so um, i teach bushcraft and survival skills that's so my profession nowadays i was a chef many for many years many years ago in quite a few years ago i got into bushcraft and survival skills and that takes me around quite a bit but also i work with ernie dingo running some calls uh-huh. camping on country which is going to remote indigenous communities and working on men's physical mental and cultural health which is pretty awesome and that's uh yeah Super privileged position. I mean, to be able to go to these amazing communities and yeah, We've learn about ding-o.
0: Yeah, oh, oh man, I used to watch him growing up all
3: the time. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell, he'd be getting on now, wouldn't he? He is a fighting fit. Sixty six, I believe he is now. Not this birthday. The birthday last year, he spent just with me on the road. Like I took yeah. him out for food, and we. When he played the Pokies for like three hours, because that's all he <laughs> wanted to do—just fancy dinner and Pokies <laughs> day. Um, but no, I mean he's got five-year-old twin boys. You know, he's still uh, still working hard. He's still, you know, like oh, really? enjoying life. We go out. We go into the communities, and he's got an axe, and he can swing an axe better than I have ever been able to. And uh, yeah, he's still still as if he was in his thirties. The way he moves around.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, so. Caelan, you've got a bit of a background on TV with the uh, Outback Lockdown show. Is any of this uh-huh. being filmed Is this, or is this just for the cause?
3: No. No, I mean this is something that I've actually – so the production company that Outback Lockdown filmed with mm-hmm. found out I was doing this and they were, yeah, all over, all over it, um, wanting to make a show out of it. But the thing is if you start bringing cameras in, I mean they we take a, an Aboriginal doctor with us where we can because they don't even trust – Doctors generally in a lot of these remote communities. We start rolling in with cameras, the impact that we have in the communities just wouldn't be there. I mean, only runs these yarning circles. So the men open up, they talk about the things that have happened in their life, and 90% of stories contain um addiction, abuse, murder, like I mean all in every story, there's mm. these tales. Uh there's tears of joy from releasing the stress and it's just an amazing experience and I, we wouldn't have that impact if we tried to televise it for sure. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense.
1: And how do they go with you being, you know, they'll obviously pick up the accent that you're not from from Australia originally and all that sort of stuff. Is
3: it under
1: the guidance of Ernie that they, they sort of accept you as well or is it a bit of a shame? I'm struggle? only
3: Dingo's friend. I'm just by <laughs> instantly, straight away. Yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. That works well. <laughs> it does, doesn't
0: it?
3: Bloody hell.
0: I, yeah, I've heard like, many stories about how like tough some of the, the children of that get treated out in the communities. It doesn't seem like a terribly great upbringing at times.
3: I mean, it depends. I mean, it differs from community to community. I think there's this misconception that we have an Aboriginal people, like it's one – it's like saying the European people, you know. It's like comparing comparing people from Spain and people from Italy. Mm-hmm. There's, they are more similar. I would say than if you compare a community from far Northern Queensland and another one from Southern Northern territory, let's say, I mean, you've got 300 active languages, as many diverse cultures, ways, and it's, uh, yeah. So it's different all all around. Um, yeah. Some have got it tough. Some they are having a spectacular time and it's just like living free. Yeah. I found that with me when I spent time just living off the land in the bush, the things that get you down is, all the tap that follows life, you know, it's all other people, your job, your arguments that going out, the this, the that, the that. When you just worry about your family, your loved ones, and your immediate survival, there's nothing to worry about. Like depression doesn't exist. It's just yeah.
1: It's it's yeah. It's interesting you say that because I often, if I'm having a bit of a dark day, that's often where I sort of reflect, and that's the point I get to of thinking, well, how much easier would it be if. And I say I often say to my missus, I'm like, I wish I was just living in a cabin in the woods and all I have to worry about is, you know, getting food for the day and, you know, upgrading the cabin sort of thing and not having to deal with the politics of life and the media and all that sort of stuff. Life would just yeah. be so much simpler. And I think that's probably what we're designed more so to do and live like rather than the complications of a modern life.
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, the problem is, is that we instinctively crave comfort. And that is something which is a double-edged sword because though it's obviously better for our initial immediate survival, it actually has a lot more negative repercussions. You know, like the, the idea of the cabin in the woods is a dream that a lot of people have for those very reasons. You know, you get to get rid of the stresses and woes of life, but it comes with its own challenges, which aren't as detrimental to your, state of mind as in like your state of depression but it is detrimental to the fact that you're freezing your ass off every morning before you make the fire you're like the slightest thing like a really bad rain can just ruin your r- really ruin your time when uh, it comes at the wrong time i mean big winds were a massive deal because we had a rooftop tent that we had on top of an old water collection thing next to stone cottage and when the wind blew, the wind, like, you're just up all night. Mm. No doubt about it.
1: I think we're probably talking to the perfect person with having done Outback Lockdown, like that extended period, yeah. out yeah. <laughs> <our laughs> roughing it. How long was that total, you know, time you are out, out there?
3: Seven months. Oh, wow. Seven months all up. Um, it was professional, for professional reasons, we had work to do and other ventures the initial time that they actually filmed we got out there and they arrived and they probably only spent three weeks initially and then they came back for pickups and did another couple of weeks with us so it was only the very very beginning of the time we spent out there but um yeah we we just stayed there for the whole of the major part of the pandemic
0: did you do many runs into town for food or was it
3: no, there was no runs into town for food per se. So we had, strangely, so my partner Kai, survivalist, TV, you know, she's done, she's got quite a few accolades in the survival world. Well, when we came, we came to Australia. I was initially going to go and meet Kai in the states. She was on a ranch. It was her friend who's also on Naked and she Does quite a few of that. She was seeing a, a country and western singer who was from the states and he had a massive compound in Georgia like just he's been waiting for the apocalypse you know he's been fortifying the place for the zombies and he couldn't wait he's like get just get him to come here you he can stay here and we'll ride whatever this is out you know yeah. i was like sweet he's got an amazing gun collection everyone had mandatory training every day from a from a, a marksman guy who was there i couldn't wait to get there and my ticket was cancelled last minute so pretty gutted because Trump closed the borders and my visa for Australia was still valid. And I was going to come here for two weeks was the plan, two weeks, and we were going to go and stay on 36,000 acres in SA. And, yeah, turned into now I live here. Which
1: is, <laughs> <Yeah>. Very good. <laughs> it's funny how things it's happen. It's pretty cool, well, that's, isn't it? That's, uh, yeah, it is pretty cool. It's probably the, op- the uh, opportune time to roll out the question one, which yeah. is where are you from?
3: I'm from England originally, so I'm from the southwest. It's a harbour town called Bristol, which is home of Banksy, the Street Artist, um, Blackbeard the Pirate, the first ever suspension bridge, and the first ever solid chocolate bar made by Fry's. Oh, wow. All the the big accolades in Bristol. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh,
1: Very cool. What was it like growing up there? And how long before you, um, you, well, I guess, came out to Australia? Like, what was the age then?
3: Uh, so, I mean, it was great. I had a mixed mixture of um, countryside and living in the city. So I was born quite urban, like kind of suburban, really, mm-hmm. um, in a little kind of area that was essentially a little mining town within the city. I suppose you should call it, or it was way back when. Um, really nice. And then moved out to the countryside just like living like a, like a feral kid as they, as you would living out in the country. And then I moved back into the city and lived in the inner city for my late teens, mid to late teens and up into my twenties. But I always kind of skipped backwards and forwards and went back to the country. Um, and then, yeah, then I came back to Australia about five years ago for a bit, just visiting, spent a lot of time going out to awesome restaurants and just spending time uh, meeting my friends who were Aussie from England and then, yeah, moved out here three years ago.
0: During this time in, in your teens, you were doing your chef's apprenticeship?
3: No, it was a bit of a, a random one. So, yeah, as I say, I did a bit of a, a tattooing apprenticeship when mm-hmm. I was, yeah, like thir- late 13 until I was about four, no, like just before I was 15. with that for a bit. Unfortunately, the guy who passed away. He was tri- teaching me, so that put an end to that. And then – I was, I started studying. I wanted to study biology to be an entomologist, like insects and stuff. Mm. It was just really uh, exotic pets, like collected tarantulas, and I wanted some animal based job, really. I was going to do insects. And I got a job just uh, washing dishes, doing a bit of kitchen prep. Loved the lifestyle and just loved eating, loved cooking. So I got into that, that way.
0: Oh, very nice. Is it as rough in the kitchens over there as what TV makes it out to be? Well,
4: 100%.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like, Gordon Ramsay, he's a he's a caricature nowadays. He's, a, he's larger than life, but it all came from... So after he was at Harvey's with Marco Pierre-White and he was on TV, he did a TV show of his own restaurant and there was a hidden camera. And it's brutal the way that he treats these chefs. But, like, life was brutal. It was... I was in the the time... I mean, there's too much like safe spaces and things like that nowadays you just you, you couldn't get away with it but it is it was like the army and i was in the kind of last era where you know it was there was violence still in the kitchen you know people would like getting hit by a pan i've been cut before with knives by another chef and had stuff thrown at me and it was, yeah it's pretty pretty savage was it intentional good? that another
2: chef would cut you or was this accidental
3: well, no, it was intentional. He was. We were having a, a disagreement about something, and it was kind of a half. Uh, was it joking? No, it was pretty serious. But there was a there was a, a giggle on the end of it, and then he threatened me. with He kind of brandished the knife, and I said, told him to go on. Then, and he he went on then and cut my forearm. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> my yeah. my old boy used to be a, a chef actually, and he. Yeah, well, he was chef oh, I think, 25 years or something. And then he um, gave it up when I was probably about 10. And um, he used to tell a story about a chef who threw a knife at another chef and it the other guy was facing away and the handle hit him in the back. So another half rotation, it would have just dead. gone yeah. straight into his back. And this um, is say, my old man got out of it just because it was such a high stress, high Oh, high tempo and yeah, he had a mild heart attack. I think at like thirty-five or something. So um, it's um,
3: yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a young man's game for sure. You know, it's the 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 lifestyle that comes with it as well. I mean, you've got to be a borderline alcoholic just to just to socialize. They're you know? expected. Is one of the only professions where your boss insists that you go out and get drunk before you've got to go into work and do sixteen-hour day. You know, in, in a lot of places, in a lot of cases, we feel obligated. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you operate doing that? couldn't Especially fathom cooking. doing
0: that. <laughs> Having said that, plenty of bush camp, like deer hunting uh. camp meals are done pretty intoxicated, I guess.
1: <laughs> 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 they taste good True. at the time. That's why they taste good, because you can't taste can't
3: them properly. <laughs> sure, yeah.
1: Well, we're on the subject of food. You've kind of covered off on question three, which is what your first job. But let's go for question two and get that one done. Which is, what is your favorite food?
3: Well, it's definitely going to be game meat for sure. I mean, that was the kind of that was the cuisine that I wanted to specialize in. I didn't really get the option in a lot of places. In one place, it was amazing that I did get a lot of opportunity to prep up wild game. This is before I really got into hunting properly. Yeah, we had a guy who used to come in, dodgiest guy in the world. Like, th- we we always used to joke that he's definitely killed people. He Used to come in, he was some poacher guy, and he'd just be like, "What, well, mate? I've got two deer? Don't ask." <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, cool. And the head chef, he was paying like fifty quid for two deer. You know, he didn't didn't have any questions. And I was always quick to prep the game. So we uh, one day there'd be fifty pigeons, another day there'd be twenty rabbits, and I'd just be there, happy as Larry, prepping it up. But yeah, so I mean, definitely game definitely game i mean of the game animals probably venison yeah. is one of my top ones and also pigeon wood pigeon is definitely up there where do you rate kangaroo <laughs> uh, oh if you would have asked me four years ago i would have said it's enjoyable i i had to pull the pin i can't i don't eat it anymore it's <laughs> a bit not white. at all
2: same as me really i was sort of used to kind of like at the back straps or weren't too bad but then now it's just Nah. It gets old quickly. Yeah, yeah real quick.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: So yeah. I
3: spent because we were eating just meat. So we were eating carnival the whole time that we were out there for the seven months. So I'd already started it. So it was about a year for me altogether. But breakfast, lunch, and dinner, nothing but kangaroos. Oh, Savage. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, we've mentioned on the podcast, when we were kids in the 90s, Kangaroo was dirt cheap, so growing up with not not much um, money, we, we ate it all the time. And now it's expensive as, but you and do get sick of it if you have it too much for sure.
0: I, I think it's tastes terrible. To be honest. <laughs> I think it's absolutely <laughs> terrible. And the tail, I don't know why people like the tail. But what's what's your favourite way of
2: preparing game meat?
3: It cooking. depends on the sit on the setting. And when I was with the remote indigenous communities. A lot of it was cop murray. So you dig a pit and line it with some, well, usually you, the best thing to use is actually termite mound, but you line it with rocks, preferably termite mound, and that really retains the heat really well. Make a large fire. When that goes out and you've just got the coals, layer of leaves, something wattles, great because it flavors the meat. So like lemon-scented gum or something works wonderful. Um, and then the meat, and then you put some more leaves on top. If you've got paper bark around, then paper bark, and then you cover it with sand, leave it for four hours, come back, and everything's just perfectly cooked. So, just the whole experience with the cooking experience, I definitely say traditional pit oven. Nice. Is it just on
2: the leaves thing, in case someone does try that, is there anything not to use? <laughs>
3: <laughs> there is, and I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I have a feeling. So, you be. don't want to use iron wood at all. So, uh, there's iron wood, which is not to be confused with iron bark. Is there's loads of great uses for. I mean, it's a really strong wood. They used for lances affixed into spears. But there's also um a substance called milk, which is on the root system that you have to warm up the root system and scrape it off. And it's like an adhesive and also like a plastic, you just pound it out and keep keep it warm, keep pound, keep pounding it. And it's like warm plasticine, but it dries like plastic. It's amazing for <laughs> handles, for tools and stuff. And we were making spears and a guy said to me, and it, English was like his fourth language, so he didn't really know what he was saying. He said, oh, don't burn it because it'll make you sick. As I was heating it up to take off <laughs> the resin. I said, okay, cool. And then another guy who spoke fluent English said, uh, oh, yeah, you if you burn it, it, it'll make you sick, and it makes women miscarry. It's like women will have a miscarriage from oh, burning no. the wood. So eating the leaves kills livestock. You've got to be really careful. So I definitely wouldn't put that in your in your pit up for sure. Yep. Yeah, if that paints the taints the meat you're going to know about it that's crazy
2: is that sort of the only thing that you'd avoid
3: not the only thing there are a few other things i mean there's lots of stuff in the bush which is pretty deadly i mean you don't want to get any gidgee beans mixed up in your in your leaves for sure when you actually no, well, actually i say that i take that back because that does render a when it gets to 65 degrees but there are definitely other things out there that you want to be careful with something (laughs) resinous that's going to taint the meat quite a bit the only thing too much resin
0: most people just avoid uh, eating anything that looks like a berry in Australia because it's just like, yeah. no, nah, it's half of <laughs> poisons. <Yeah>. Sure, sure. <laughs> is, there, so.
3: is, there,
1: is there anything in um, learning some of these traditional food preparation methods? Is there anything that really took you by surprise in how the um, indigenous people do it?
3: Not particularly. I wouldn't say take me by surprise in the way they do it. I, well, I suppose maybe the kind of what I see is quite a cavalier attitude to things that Westerners see as um like sacred cows, you know, mm. like the stuff that I've eaten, that I've eaten with them is not only some things that would make your toes cold, but other things that you think to yourself, they're not supposed to be eaten there. Like sea turtle eggs, for instance, like yep. just being up on the Northern coast, I was up in, I think it was Pomparo I was in and we were by the beach. Maybe it was whatever. Yeah, I think it might have been water, actually. And we're on the beach, and I wake up in the morning, and I go out and I can see the footprints where the turtles have come up to lay their eggs the night before. And there's dingo footprints where the dingoes have been investigating. And I felt like I was in this magic, well, I was in this magical land. I went and told the elders, and they looked at each other and just ran to the beach and d- <sighs> digged up the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, what? And yeah, uh, it's just the dinner bell, you know? <laughs> it was, um,
2: can't say I yeah. wouldn't turn it down if someone offered it to me. Oh,
3: That's, of course, of course. Why not? So I did. I tried it, and I wanted to try it cooked, and everyone's telling me you just need to eat them raw. And I thought, no way. But the, the white of the egg is basically just seawater. It's not like the white membrane you get in a normal egg. And the yolk of the egg is really, really thick and creamy. So when it cooks, it's like a little pebble, which is horrible, and you just get this kind of seawater water around it. Mm. But when you eat them raw, the seawater, it's like eating, almost like eating an oyster. You know, you get that little bit of water, which almost seasons it, and you get this really creamy yolk. And fortunately, I'm told, the air embryos weren't crunchy yet, so they get a little bit <laughs> crunchy when they're a bit older. They were just like a little jelly bean.
0: <laughs> There's a tortoise shell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah.
3: Like the- Oh,
0: yeah, the the way they they do, I've seen them do fish on on shows and things. They'll just put them on hot coals as well, what? Well, like yeah. Not wrapping them in anything, and then just mm. peel the flesh flesh away and and eat them. They don't even gut them, nothing like that. Is that with yeah. um, scales on or scales off?
3: It's it's as little prep as necessary. I mean, I started doing things like I started to scale it, and they looked at me like I was an idiot. You know, it's just like, well, what are you doing? Just chuck it straight on the fire. Like I was going to fillet it and do some stuff while evening and they're like, what are you doing? And just chuck it straight on the coals. And then the whole thing gets peeled back and just eaten straight there, like straight on the coals. You just flip it over. And as the other side's cooking, they're ripping off that the top side and eating it straight off the fire. Okay. Bloody <laughs> hell. It's efficient. <laughs> <laughs> no messing around.
1: Sounds like a waste of time. i got, I got to ask, Caleb, have you had a witchetty grub?
3: I have. I had probably the biggest widgety grub I've seen. The first one I had is a, I've never seen one as big. It was the size of like a, a butcher's traditional sausage. It was oh, humongous. Wow. It's on, it's like really early back in my Instagram. I've got a video of it, but it was spectacularly large. <laughs> and yeah. They're pretty delicious. They could do with a bit of salt, but uh, they, they take on the flavor of whatever they've been in. So there's a real nuttiness from the gum that it was living in. It was lovely. Yeah. Is is there a particular
1: section you are and aren't supposed to eat? Because inevitably, anyone digs one up here in Adelaide,
3: <laughs> they will like, oh yeah, eat
1: it. <laughs> but, but you know, it never goes down well.
3: Uh, I think it's all game. I mean, there's two main sections really. There's the head and the rest, and the, I usually hold the head and eat the rest and discard the head because yeah, it's just yeah. a bit the business end, isn't it? You know. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's it. I mean, I mean, the thing is, strangely. Or interestingly, when settlers first came here and started harvesting the um, mussels from the water's edge, all the Aboriginal people sneered at them because they couldn't understand why they would want to eat them. They thought they were disgusting. And they went and gathered widgety grubs for them to say, no, no, eat this. Don't eat those disgusting mussels. Do these <laughs>
1: Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how it works out, but <laughs> 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 it's to add a personal preference at the end, I guess. Mm, Muscles <laughs> or witchetty grubs? Uh, I
2: don't know which one I'm going to choose. I've got, I've got to try a witchetty grub because I've seen them and I've thought about it, but never actually done it. So,
3: have you, if you do try, if you get the opportunity as well, try cooking it. If you're a little bit grossed out by the fact that it's just a basically a balloon full of pus, yeah. try. You're a- <laughs> really selling it. <laughs> Try rolling it on the coals first. It does great. It's like a, an eggy sausage, it's the best way to describe it. Okay. Got...
0: Still not doing anything for
1: <laughs> an eggy sausage.
3: <laughs>
1: oh, dear. I'm keen, I'm keen to try a cooked one, not a raw
3: one. How, how long would you cook it for? Like seconds, you know, less than a minute. Just, you like just quick sear. Get it on. Yeah. So, like the so softwood coals are probably better. So, like, like the white ones. And just when they're hot, just give it a rollover. You don't want to go crazy with it, and just yeah, give it a sear. Cooks pretty quickly.
0: Oh, we'll have to try it. Have you tried cooking them with, like, in a dish with something to jazz it up?
3: I'm actually. I'm thinking about writing a cookbook and having it location by location and doing it kind of in a kind of fine dining kind of way with, um, like, make a coolie from some local berries. And but I think it would go really well in a start as a starter. You know, in a posh restaurant, for sure.
2: <laughs> That's uh, I like that idea because um, the survival books I've seen, it's all American, or European, and I haven't really seen many that are Australian. So mm. um, I'll be keen. I'll check it well, out. Well, on that
3: note, the survival books, my partner's just released Survive, which is a survival book. It's kind of worldwide, but one of it pertains to Australian Bush.
2: Nice, for sure. What's yeah. cool? Yeah. So cool. Survive, BF, yeah. yep.
3: <laughs> <laughs> i heard it and just didn't register <laughs> yeah short and sweet, just survive. yeah
1: beautiful just just back on the uh the venison do you have a preference in the species of deer because a lot of we have a bit of a debate amongst ourselves you know red chittle fallow who likes what and people i mean it's pretty evenly split really again um amongst everything so do you have a, a favorite
3: Personally, I think is age over species, and I must be honest. I don't tell that I can't tell the difference massively. You know, if yeah. someone that told me beforehand, I'd struggle. You can tell how old it is. You know, you can definitely tell by the cut. You know, if you get a strip loin and it's older, it's not going to be not as nice as if it's a younger specimen. Mm. But then, with age comes flavor. So there's a nice balance. I think like two, three years old is like a perfect gaminess to tenderness ratio, depending on what depending on the species um the deer i've eaten the most is going to be obviously fallow i've eaten a lot of fallow in the uk a lot of roe deer oh yeah uh, oh yeah we get loads of rows loads of muntjac um yeah i've eaten a lot, a lot of those i think they're a bit more bland but tender as well mm-hmm. but yeah i mean just, but just a, a big red just for just the i'd like the feeling I like the knowledge when I'm eating it. You know, I just feel like it's much. It's a more mighty, majestic meal <clears> because of because of the species. Maybe that's what it is.
1: I like red as well. Yeah, I think it's like the
0: the, the texture of red as well. Just it's it's very steak-like uh, in my mind. Anyway, it's that's how it feels when I eat it. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> just to sort of go on, like we had a Kiwi guest on, and
2: she rated fellow over red. And us here, we rate red over fallow. So for fallow, for example, depending on the country or where it's from, do you find it tastes a lot different?
3: No, I don't. I really don't. I'd love to uh, – sh- maybe I should. I should feel like I should have more of a, a feeling about the difference. I mean, the thing that it's grazing on is going to make a difference yeah. to the meat, but I really don't get it personally. I don't have a massive uh, – you know, I, yeah, I can't tell the difference, okay. if I'm honest. Your partner
0: was a vegan? A vegetarian or a vegan
3: at one stage. My what? Your partner? He was a vegetarian for years, like fifteen or sixteen years. Yeah. Yes.
0: Did did you? You always been a meat eater?
3: Always, always Once. been a meat eater. I did actually, because I mean, when I first started hunting, before I started hunting, I wasn't actually from like a hunting background, and it took me a while to come to terms with doing it. And I did tell myself if I couldn't do it, I wasn't going to be a hypocrite, and I just wouldn't eat meat. But, no, never. I've always been a keen, keen carnivore. Yeah, very nice, very nice.
0: I found that that surprising when uh quite spoke about that on the show, uh, being a, a, a vegetarian and now she's a hunter and it's like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty big switch from one side to the other.
3: Yeah. she Well, she's not just a meat eater. She's pretty much pure carnivore. There are times when we're in the city and, like, we go to a nice restaurant and I just want to cook something. It's got something in it. She'll dabble. But, I mean, she's she almost eats like a kid, like, you know, pushes her broccoli around, doesn't want to eat it. When it used to be her favourite meat, her uh, favourite food, sorry. What sort of converted it to meat? Health health was a big factor. She started hearing things like she did stunts for 16 years. Uh, so she was banging up her body. Her recovery time was really poor and her health wasn't great. I think we're in this era where veganism and vegetarianism, but veganism for sure is only very – it's in his adolescence is very young yeah. and we're going to see people come forward very soon. Th- that are going to tell you that it doesn't work. Like I just, I personally don't believe the hype with it, with veganism. And it's not just because I hunt and because I, I eat meat. I mean, you just have to look in history. There's never once been a civilization that's been vegan. Mm. And that tells you something. I just don't, I think that we really need meat for our State of mind as well as our body as well. Yep. I kind of find that vegans are always depressed, and I think that's be like something which is innate within them, which tells them they're failing as human beings because they're not eating meat. You know,
4: mm. there's
3: something that that like when you'd get meat as a tribal people, it would be a time for celebration. You know, the hunters would come back and everyone would dance and celebrate, and it would be a joyous occasion. And the longer you ate vegetables, the worse things were getting for your people. You know, so mm. I think, like well, yeah, there's something about it.
2: That makes sense because yeah, salad ain't too exciting. <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> no,
1: no, not. Well, I've heard, I've heard veganism being described as you're basically denying yourself something that's ingrained in your DNA just yeah. about. So of course, that's going to make you feel it's kind of like living like you're city. missing something. It's
2: kind of like living in the city where you're
1: just sort of depriving yourself from nature. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like working a job where I'd rather be living in that cabin in the woods. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Something like
1: that. Well, that's sort of that's a good segue into our next question, Kalen, Which is, if you could trade places with anyone in the world, who would that be?
3: I, do you know what? I've honestly got to say nobody, because I don't know. When when you trade places, do you mean entirely? Because you don't know where other people are at, and oh. I find quite. You think about how rich someone is, or how well they seem to be doing. It you should, it's not enough. It doesn't actually make someone particularly happy. And my life's pretty cool, and I'm a, yeah. a pretty happy person generally. So yeah, I don't don't think I'd want to. I think it'd be one of those monkey pool situations where you'd actually, you know, there's always going to be a detriment, which is worse. I think if everyone, as I will stop saying, if everyone threw their troubles into the middle of the room, you can almost guarantee that you'd want to just take yours back. That's that's true. I like it. It's very <laughs> heavy. <Yeah.
2: laughs> We really need to change that question and just
1: – Well, well the, count, the count of that <laughs> question, because a lot of people do yeah. just want to live their own life. If you could just do it for a day or a week just to try someone's life or change something, what do you reckon? Oh, if
3: I could try someone's life or change something, who would it be? I mean, right now I would be really interested, interested to know what's going on with Kanye West. You know? <laughs> That's got to be an interesting existence. I think he does but, as well, uh, mate. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Word comes to
0: mind. (laughs) uh Yeah, S H I T show or something.
2: Why
1: did you say it, man? (laughs) Oh, just trying to keep it PG. I think people can spell Josh. Yeah. um Now that's yeah. It'd be it'd be interesting to see what goes on in his head. I mean, I did listen to the episode he did with Joe Rogan, which was three hours, and it made a lot more sense what he was saying in that because it's the long form. He can unpack his conversation properly rather than the little, you know, soundbite that the media do and make, you know, skew something in a direction. But he's he's still a unique individual, that's for sure.
3: Yeah. I mean, that kind of level of fame is always going to mess people up. Mm. But I think also as well, there's a lot that goes on when you get to that level of fame that – you, I think you are expected to toe the line a lot. And when if you are slightly mental in your hubris and how you think that you're supposed to be this messiah-like figure for the people, and then people are nudging you and telling you that, hang on a minute, that's not the way things work, I think he's just spiraling out of control, you know? Mm. I think it's just, and he's getting to this point now where he's just doing really well at sabotaging himself. It's crazy what's yep. going on. Yeah. Weird.
1: Is there anyone you've met who's famous that's left a real impression on you?
3: Um, I don't really, I see. I don't, I've never really been that like into, I mean, I suppose I could say Ernie. Yeah. I mean, he's, I didn't actually know he's famous when we met, but just he's so, so humble and such a, an interesting character, mm-hmm. the way he like travels through life and what he's accomplished from where he's come from, you know, he's got amazing story. Um, but I don't really, I've met some famous people. I just don't, I don't really see them as an, en- anything other than just other people I don't know they don't really imprint on me as much that much
0: how is uh you've obviously got your own tv show how is I guess the level of fame that that's brought with it How has that affected you personally
3: oh not at all really I mean I've kind of I've taken myself out of my old existence really so I mean people message me and I know that it's been air- airing in the UK but I've not been there and because I spend so much time out in the bush, I mean, if I'm in community, they don't care. And yeah, my partner's are substantially more famous, like famous in her own right for other things. So, uh, But she's really humble about it and it doesn't really affect our day-to-day lives. I mean, people recognize me sometimes. Funnily, more people recognize me from the show than Kai, because I think I've got more standout features. Um like a but, full, yeah. full black arm. <laughs> yeah, a black arm. But the bald head in bed, pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah, true. The
1: guy with the circle on his shoulder.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> You're just making yourself more recognizable, mate. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, uh, next question. What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done?
3: What's the most dangerous thing I've ever done? I mean, to be honest, I try and do at least one dangerous thing a month i reckon i mean i do we do dangerous things all the time for fun i don't know why i've just got i'm just drawn to doing things that are dangerous i think it might be i should get myself tested because i'm always doing stupid stuff i really am um so like we do a lot of climbing so we do a lot of traditional climbing just with little pieces of kit that go in between the rock and we free climb like 180 meters and stuff for fun like when we go out we do multiple day hunts and we'll go oh we just won't bother taking this or we let's try and take as little as we can and then you're just like freezing your ass off and then you think you know not maybe a sleeping bag would have been a good idea we <laughs> knew it was going to be minus weather probably a good. <laughs> <idea>. <laughs> so yeah um i don't, couldn't put my finger on it just yeah a lot of stuff generally um yeah i mean well just that when we were filming the show we're back lockdown we had No real provisions. We so we the only reason we were going into town is because we had to fuel up. So we had we did use a vehicle to get around it's 36,000 acres. A lot of it was on foot, but we had the vehicle for going backwards and forwards. The closest person was five K's away, and that was Kai's cousin who was um, on the property. He runs sheep, he was going through eight years of drought at the time. So there was little to no um, natural sources or vegetation for us if we needed it, even though we weren't really eating it. And the closest town was 50 k's away. Yep, yep. So putting ourselves in that situation, there were times when we'd just run out of food or we'd overuse our fuel supply and we'd drive into town and we were looking at the gauge the whole way because they were running on fumes. We, um, But the problem is we've been really lucky and I think that's our to our downfall as well because we're like, man, eh, we could do that again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so like the town was the closest point of medical help from that time as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's a long way for like a snake bite or
3: it just is and the the browns serious. were right we ended up eating one of them uh that we accidentally accidentally got killed as we were driving in but they were just everywhere you know you yeah. couldn't go and I nearly picked one up because I've got this love affair with messing around with dangerous animals or just animals generally and I saw a little yellow snake with a red dot on its head and I was like this is amazing look at this cool little snake and i didn't think for a second <sighs> baby for baby some baby. reason that it was going to be anything as i went down kai like went to kick my hand she's like no that's a that's a kick my hand with her flip-flop shoe she didn't have any, shoes any boots on she's like no that's a baby brown snake and the problem is is they are actually more dangerous than other yeah. brown snakes as i'm sure you know mm. so uh yeah that was just a day-to-day thing you know you'd go along and you'd you'd see a piece of corrugated steel and you could almost guarantee there was going to be one under there it was uh Something big
0: something just says in your head, though, when you see bits of sheet of iron on the ground or something, pick it up and have a look. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like d- telling a kid not to do it. You're like, yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> That's good. Cool. That's, um, like,
2: lived for 12 months in Mintaby, so top of SA, and walked probably about three feet away from like a four or five-foot inland Taipan and... Then I researched it afterwards, and if they didn't bite you, you have got minutes. Yeah, And the closest yeah. closest point to that was, I think, 30-odd K out to Marla. But, uh, yeah, it's quite sort of, I don't know, I guess, humbling in that sort of situation that it could happen real easy.
3: Yeah, so. it, may, it does appreciate life. I think most people go around thinking that life's safe. You know, there's safety signs on everything, and you are led to believe by society that, you're being looked after, and it's situations like that that make you realise that that's just a, it's a fallacy, and you should appreciate every day. It makes you enjoy it a bit more.
1: Hundred percent.
0: The cattle station up north that you you work on—that's obviously going to be pretty dangerous at times too. You got any stories about about that?
3: Oh yeah, I mean that place was just a day-to-day occurrence. I mean they had everything there. You know, there's so many crocodiles. I mean we don't—I say we. I was Just there doing a few months, there was um, it was the place where Sarah Henderson was, she's was a famous writer, 500,000 acre station up there. I had some time, I'd applied to go on a loan, is what it was mainly. So I was all set to go, I was in the final stages of casting, I'd spoken to someone, it was about to go down, and I just didn't get in. So I was a bit bummed about that, and I had some time to kill. Then Kai was off to the states. To do uh, to film an episode of Naked and Afraid that coincided at the same time, and I just ended up. I look. I was looking for a, an adventure job, you know. And <clears throat> they just had someone quit last minute, and it was taking people to see Aboriginal artwork, going up in helicopters, finding crocodiles, and just basically they gave me a GXL Land Cruiser and told me to show millionaires a good time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's awesome. pretty much what it. <laughs> But it was crazy. So you'd get up in the morning and you'd walk past where the potty calves were, the calves that had been abandoned by their mother, and there'd just be like entrails and what's left of a calf where the dingoes had broken in in the middle of the night in the middle of the homestead and just murdered one of the calves. And you're just like, oh, we better move that before the kids come to feed them. And <sighs> like, I got up got up one day and I went in and they, they had a collie, a border collie called Barney. And I'm like, where's Barney gone? And like, oh, yeah, he got eaten by a crocodile yesterday. Just <laughs> mad stuff like that was... It was constant. Just everyday life. Up there, yeah. Right? Bloody hell.
1: <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned alone. I was actually going to ask you, given that <laughs> you and Kai between you have done a few different shows, um, Alone, we're obsessed with ever since I found out about it. Um, mm. It is a top show and it's interesting yeah. to see you, you applied for it. But I got, I think, about three quarters of the way through the application process for the Australian one. I was just like... Then it required all the video portion. I'm like, this is a lot of hard work. and I didn't have the time. So I ended up giving. <laughs> but if you didn't get on. <laughs> hell all, I got a I'd got like to, to see
0: you in Vancouver Island <laughs> on, on that show. You'd be dead in 24 hours. I,
3: reckon.
1: <clears throat> I don't know. Where, I don't know where they were going to do the Australian one, though. Do you know? Do you happen to know?
3: Yeah. Um, it was Tassie. They went with, I believe. It was okay. cold. They knew, I knew they were going to go for cold. And they wouldn't tell us initially, but I'm pretty certain. I was presuming because obviously, as a non-indigenous person, you're relying on um, feral animals, aren't you? Really, if you're going to get meat, it's going to be deer. And I thought, you know, Kosciuszko Way is going to be the best place for that. Yep. And of course, you're not supposed to bow hunt in. Is it? You can't bow hunt in Tasmania. In Tassie, yeah. yeah, true. I'm thinking, how are they going to give you a bow? It's not going to work. But I think they did go with Tasmania. Maybe they got special permission in the end. It's definitely going to be the coldest place because they wanted to keep with the cold narrative. So, True. Yeah.
1: I guess that's probably yeah. the biggest shock to most Aussies. They'd be used to heat. So if you're going to make it extreme for an Australian, put them in the cold.
0: Oh, I, don't know. I don't know. Living in the middle of South Australia would be pretty fucking damning too. <laughs> heat <laughs> sucks. Oh, I'd rather oh, cold, but yeah. I mean, yeah, it's easier to start a fire, you know, in the heat.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually would rather have the cold because my biggest bane is the is the mozzies and the sandflies and stuff, man. Give oh. me if you give me an option of getting bitten all night by mozzies or getting freezing my arse off, I will like fire every single time for sure.
2: Yeah, and then cold the snakes are dormant. Yeah, it's another positive. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Deer out. <laughs> Talking about fire, actually, you're a bit of a guru at starting fire with yeah. With uh, sticks,
3: one of my favorite disciplines of survival for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've
0: watched some, like some of your your videos that you've done on it, man. You actually look make it look easy. I think every time I've tried it, just you give up and you just pull out a big lighter. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you, you did mention something, and that's there's no or there's few native species of wood that are usable for starting fire.
3: Well. Traditionally, there are two because the method that's used by Aboriginal people is, I mean, arguably there is some record of them using a fire plow, which is the actual rubbing of two sticks together. But hand drill where you spin a spindle into a hearth board is the traditional method of Aboriginal people. Yeah. And it differs depending on where you are. So if you're in the south, you've got Xanthia or grass tree or black tree and the spindle that grows out of the middle, they use that for the hearth board. And the spindle. And if you go to the north, it's coastal hibiscus, which is arguably there are some other nice trees, but it's probably the best wood in the world for making a friction fire. So they're the only two woods that were really owned. And interestingly, when I was on my travels with the Aboriginal communities, I heard a tale of it. Apparently, as well, there was a community that used to hold or I don't know if it's just one, but they would hold the the next community to ransom and they wouldn't give them the technology. So they wouldn't let them have the woods or the know-how and they would trade physical fire. So they would have to send a boy with fish or something to trade and they'd give them some burning tinder of some description and they'd have to bring that back and they'd have to keep the fire going 24 hours a day. Because if those coals went out, they'd have to send a boy to go and trade for some more. It's crazy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Australian commerce. Boom.
1: <laughs> I love it. That's Yeah, that's cool.
2: You got any tips for anyone that wants to have a crack at making fire with a couple of bits of wood?
3: Uh, yeah, I did a video on doing it. So one of the best techniques is bow drill. So you add, yep. I say best, easiest. You can add more bits of kit. Uh, the main thing is, is getting to know your materials you know if you don't know tinder if you don't know how to make a a decent tinder bundle what's going to burn in what situations how to dry it out how to prepare use the next fire mentality you're never going to be able to do it that's the most important bit the actual physical technique i know a lot of people i've taught a lot of people how to actually physically make the fire and they feel like they've they've cracked it but you put them into a real dynamic situation and that's not good enough you really need to know what woods work. I've been doing a lot of experiments with native woods, and they can be a bit denser. So um, the black wattle works really well. We've managed to get it out of cypress pines, so they'll work. They're pretty resinous, but they will work. And, in fact, we did manage with one of the flowering gums to make a make a bojo fire, but that was really hard. I mean, that's up there with using maple wood to try and get a fire. But, yeah, it does work. But yeah, and you your wood, yeah, is the best best thing I can recommend. But yeah, if you want to know, anyone wants to know, I've got a video on my Instagram that goes through it in one minute exactly how to stand and sit and everything. It's all about the fine details.
0: I think some photos of of the the wood to use or the plant or tree itself uh, to help identify them because you mentioned a few few trees and I'm like, yeah, I can't I can't picture in my head what they they look like. But, yeah, I think that would be pretty hard because we just go along and pick up some gum and just be like, yep, give it a go. It's not working. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately,
1: I don't think we've been in that situation where we've had to life or death make a pile. Yeah,
3: Big glider in the pocket everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best thing that I recommend. You know, if you're going out, yeah, make sure you've got a baker too.
1: Easy. All right, well, next question is, what is the best piece of advice you've been
3: given, Callum? Wow, that's really put me on the spot. What's the best piece of advice I've ever been given? Mm. Yeah, you've stumped me there. I couldn't put my finger on one piece of advice, that's the best piece of advice I've ever been given.
1: Might be, you know, piece of bushcraft advice or life in general. People generally go back to their parents and say, oh, you know, mum told me this back in the day.
0: Well, that's a good one. Would it be a... I don't know, soldiers five on what not, what berries not to eat in (laughs) Australia. There you go. That's a good bit of advice.
3: What berries not to buy? I recommend not eating any of them for sure. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice. Don't (laughs) eat the berries. Don't eat any of them. You're in for a bad time.
1: (laughs) uh, Speaking of eating stuff and what not to eat, what about mushrooms?
3: 100%. It's one of my favorite extreme sports, Wild (laughs) mushrooms. I've, I've got two friends who I learn a lot of my mushroom knowledge from. Uh, they're Matt and Joey. Now, Matt is the kind of guy who's like, ah, chuck it in the pan, see how it goes. And Joey's the one who's like, whoa, don't eat that, don't eat that. And he'll only eat things he really, really knows about. Mm. And what happens is I go foraging and I'm Matt. And then after I've eaten them, I turn into Joey. You know, I'm like, just <laughs> anything. If I burp, I think that I'm going to bring up my intestines. You know, it just... So yeah, I just really enjoy the the adventure. Never knowing if I'm, it's going to be my last meal.
0: <laughs> Jeez. Have you ever been crook off one?
3: No, I've been really fortunate. I haven't. No, I've never been really bad. I've been, yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've been, re- I've been really lucky. I've not been, I've never been ill from it.
1: Is there a rule of thumb? What is the rule of thumb for anyone who has no idea when it comes to mushrooms? Oh,
3: I mean, there's pale, spread out gills. So white spread gills is almost always going to be something that you can eat. But the problem is, is that most mushrooms have a, a sinister counterpart. So, for instance, you've got parasol mushrooms, the big round ones that have got the kind of jaggedness on them. They've got You've got the parasol, which is amazing. It tastes like beef. It's delicious. It's really aromatic. It's, it's amazing. It's got a lovely texture. And then you've got the false parasol. And the only t- way to tell is that the stem has got stretch marks on it of the natural parasol. So it looks like it had a kind of brown, thin skin around it that stretched because it grew too quickly, you know, like a stretch mark. Mm. And the false parasol doesn't. And that stands for most mushrooms. You get boletes, and some of them, most of them are great. You get the ink block ones that as you cut them, they get that real vibrant blue that comes through and they're delicious. But then ones with a slight red tinge to them, you're going to spend a lot of time squatting in the bush after one of those. <laughs> it's uh, it really is just really knowing your mushrooms. Yeah.
0: The something I'd like to get into more of actually is, is a bit of foraging. I love eating mushrooms. I think they're great, especially with steak and things, but, it's just knowledge. It, that's all it is. It's like I've been out a couple of times with the missus and we'll go, we'll we'll find heaps, pick heaps, and then we look at it and we're like, oh, is it safe? No. <laughs> no. No. And then you end up with like two and you're like, oh, it's not really worth we'll throw it. Throw them as well. Huh?
3: <laughs> yeah, I I the thing I'm really into it. And I think one of my biggest fears is dying of starvation surrounded by food. You know? Yeah. Like there's this thing the frogs will, will they eat based on movement. So a lot of frogs, you could f- put them in a container full of mealworms that are dead and they'll die of starvation because they'll only eat ones that move.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think, God, oh, what stupid idiot, you know? It's by food. But then, I mean, if you don't know what the plants are, you could quite easily die in the bush and there'd be food everywhere. Or even, you know, being able to catch animals. People always argue with me saying that, I don't agree with hunting unless you're in a survival situation. And my argument is always you'd never be able to catch anything unless you've practised it. Yeah. Mm. So unless you're an active hunter, you're never going to be a hunter who lives in a survival situation.
0: I think most people aren't going to survive. Yeah, I think
2: we're way too far separated from nature as a whole. Mm. Yeah. So there's not
0: many that actually know. People miss that point of hunting. It, not only is it, yeah, you're going out and hunting, but it's that connection with nature. I think people overlook that uh, way too much. They just look at the bad sort of, you know, stigma behind it and they don't realise that you, you're out there, you know, connecting
1: with nature. Well, Caleb, I'd actually like to know how you got into hunting because you did mention to us that you actually started out as an anti-hunter. So how did, did uh, get, how did getting into hunting actually come around for you?
3: Well, it's a funny story. Actually, it's a story of the owl and the pussy cat. So it started off in my mind, really. So I had an uncle who introduced me to exotic pets. Is really why I got into it. Like his was mainly exotic fish and birds. We so kept quails, and he had a few other things in a big aviary. And he had koi carp, and he had Siamese fighting fish. And I was in awe of his house whenever we'd go there. I lived in Plymouth, and one day the cat was dying. And he took the cat and he took it into the shed. And I never heard another thing about the cat. And then I found out when we got home that he'd taken a shovel and cut the cat's head off. And I thought he was a monster. It really did taint my opinion of my uncle. I thought, how could he do it? He's supposed to be an animal lover. How could he kill it? That's that's insane. You know? (laughs) And then fast forward a few years and I had a pet barn owl that was I can talk about it now. It's not, it's not too bad. He was actually bred by someone who didn't have a license, so it was like an illegal barn owl. But I was a kid, and anyway, um, one day I went to check on it, and he had gotten caught on his aviary on his thing, and he'd broken his neck. And I was distraught, and I put him in a box, and I went down to the guy that I got it from, and this guy's like, "Oh yeah, well, I like we all knew what the situation was. You know, he wasn't going to make it." And he said, oh, no, I couldn't do it. I don't, don't, don't have the heart, you know. And as I was walking home and I was crying, I was like a kid, and all caught up about my owl, and it died, like the kicking stopped. And I realised, because I think all, anti- all people who don't hunt think that it's a virtue. They say that I'm an animal lover, I could never hurt an animal. But in that instance... I wasn't doing what was best for the animal. I was doing what was best for my feelings because yeah. I couldn't bring myself to put that animal out of misery. And I just started to think that it was, I, I, I just had to re jiggle my actions to fit my ethos rather than catering my life around my emotions, which is what people do is they justify what they think is a virtue, which I think is actually a weakness of character. And they jiggle it around to justify their feelings. And I just had to go the other way. So I told myself, I'd give myself, I wanted to start being able to hunt mine food. If I'm going to eat meat, I want to be be able to be the dude who kills it. So I gave myself, it took me four years. I just, I was going to take a couple of years, but it took me like four years of watching dispatch videos, getting really proficient. I started shooting clay pigeons competitively, semi-competitively um but really into eye hunting, really into like learning because there's so much you know actually making an ethical shot there's so much to it am i on a hill what am i what's the animal doing being able to read an animal practicing my stalking going to local estates that had deer and just following the animal i came to realize that i wasn't anti-hunting and i don't think if you actually look at it that many people are anti-hunting because They're not anti the actions of animals who don't care. There is no humane dispatch in the animal world. Really, unless you're a solitary hunter, like a big cat, apart from lions, that that hunt things that are almost an equal size and weight, because you have to kill them instantly because they'll end up killing you. Every single other animal that eats meat will just eat it while it's alive, but they don't care. But no one deplores the actions of those animals. And then... So that's where you start. So you don't hate hunting in that regard. And then if you say, well, what about a Maasai warrior who goes out and kills a lion as a rites of passage? You know, they go out and they hunt lions as a matter of routine, not even necessarily if the lion's a threat. Do you have a problem with them being hunters? And they'll always say no. Mm -hmm. So what the people's problem really is, is a prejudice against this very particular type of person, and that is people who live like them but choose to hunt people who are from the West because they presume that they've got some nefarious reasons for wanting to do it, that they actually enjoy hurting animals, Yeah, which is so mental that someone, because if you weren't into that, you'd spend a lot of time and you spend a lot less money going to a pet shop and being nasty that way, rather than going out and sometimes using a minimal kit like bows and arrows to try your best to dispatch an animal. And if, Anything goes wrong, you beat yourself up about it. I mean, I'd even argue that people who hunt love animals way more than non-hunters because non-hunters don't know any animals. they've never had any interactions with animals. Having a cat or a dog is not, have, is not an animal that is that is like um it's, it's, it's just like a science project I've heard it referred to in the past. you know mm. it's, There's nothing like an animal you don't understand what animals are.
0: You
1: know? Yeah, mm. Yeah. I mean you do spend a lot of time as a hunter investing a lot of time and effort researching into the species you're after. So the things you you learn about deer and especially observing them in their natural habitat, well, in Australia it's not exactly a natural habitat but the, it is kind of now. But, um, you know, it's it's amazing watching animals in the wild and you've, you've sort of put yourself in – insert yourself in the food chain and just sit there and watch – nature go around it's a very different perspective to what most people see when they go for a bushwalk because they're making a lot of noise and the animals are scared off but when an animal doesn't know you're there and you can observe them there's so much knowledge to be gained in doing that and it's kind of a beautiful thing it gives you more of an appreciation for for the species you're after i think
3: i agree with you 100 percent. i think that people have a misconception that when they go into the woods. They're like Snow White or Mary Poppins, and the birds are all flying around and chirping for them. When the reality is that everything's ran away, and there are a few species that remain, and they're sending out alarm calls to tell you that they see you, they're not afraid, and that they're trying to put you off of your hunt. They're trying, you are an apex predator. You have been for millions of years, and it's nice to know truly where you fit and appreciate nature from an honest perspective rather than a, a disney view of the world. It's, it's a different world. It really is.
1: I think, yeah, the disnified thing. As soon as anyone who's, you know, not – who sort of has that Sigma still and they're not familiar with hunting, they go, oh, you shoot Bambi. That's always the first thing people <laughs> yeah.
3: say. <laughs> yeah. So. And also the the thing they don't understand is that the, the guy who shot Bambi wasn't a hunter. He was a poacher. It was out of season. And he – was chasing down a like physically chasing down a doe with a fawn. If anybody went on to a hunting forum and spoke to hunters and told them that they were doing that, they'd get as much strife as if they went on to a vegan forum and tried to do it. No no hunters are are into that. It's, yeah, it's not true. Exactly. We're not out looking for Bambi's mum. Very true.
1: Very true. All right, the next question is, what is your most treasured possession, Calum?
3: What's my most treasured possession? I try not to be too into possessions like that. I don't like to, you know, because everything's kind of disposable. I don't like to put too much onus on trinkets. Um, What would be my most treasured possession?
1: What about sentimental value? I mean, if you're not materialistic, there's got to be maybe something with some sentimental value or a piece of kit that's your favourite. I do have
3: one knife that is at the point – you know, I like tools to be tools – and it annoys me. Like I my first shotgun was a uh, Browning Maxus. It was a semi-automatic with carbon fiber, and it was beautiful. It cost me a few grand. I, it was present actually. And the problem was is that I love doing rough shooting, I love being in the blind, I love shooting birds, and I'd spend more time concerned about damaging my gun than I would be about getting my quarry. And I'd much rather have like an my over and under middle and arms. It was an old rattler, but it shot straight and I was concentrating on what I was doing. So I really do hate it when I have that I, opinion of things, but I've got a knife and it was given to, um, Kai and Kai gave it to me and it's a folder. And I think the reason why it's so sentimental is the fact that I've managed to hold on to it for so long. I've had it for all this time scraping through the bush and it's a really nice, it's a Southern grind. Oh. So it's, uh, company from the states which is owned by uh zach brown and he the singer and he gave it to kai and kai let me have it and yeah i'm just my fit now with every year that passes that i've got it the fear of losing it is so much greater and it's seen it's seen everything you know i've like cut up so many animals with it i've done so much stuff with it is that
0: your everyday carry
3: it is definitely my ED, yeah edc yeah. and i keep thinking about replacing it but then as much as i'm scared of losing it with every year that passes I do want to see how many years I can get out of it before I end up losing it
1: <laughs> very nice well we 100% agree agree with you in terms of the firearms thing and just treating them as a tool because I mean when you when you get in your rifle you're a bit careful with it but then the amount of knocks and scrapes and things that they get if you're using them properly and using them for what they're designed for you, if you're being precious about it it's just a painful experience going hunting so uh, agree with you. Couldn't agree with you more.
3: There, for sure. And those things and scrapes are badges of honor as well. You know, you look down, and I lament the scars on the stock. But then I'm like, oh, that scar was where I went over that piece of barbed wire, and I went and did that retrieval and managed to find that bird that I, you know, that pheasant that went down in the other field. And there's, there's a, a bit. It brings life to your tools when you, when you get them into dings and scrapes.
2: What's your favorite way of sort of hunting? I've seen. You sort of do a lot of bow hunting and there's a few rifles on there as well. What's your sort of go-to?
3: My go-to? Well, I definitely would consider myself a bow hunter predominantly. I love rifle hunting. I love shotguns. I mean, shotguns was my biggest passion when I was in the UK. I do love those forms of hunting. but as And I don't want to sound elitist, and I know a lot (laughs) of bow hunters are, but I kind of got to the feeling that it's, it's more of a true hunting experience. You know, when you get to 200 yards and the rifle hunters hunt is almost over, uh, it's where your bow hunters hunt really begins. You know, it just makes that fair chase more, more fair. Yeah. lack <laughs> of a better putting it. And yeah, I definitely do. I am, I have been getting into using, and so it's, it's the closer you get, you know, you start off with a rifle out in the distance, and then you get closer and closer and closer until some people, I mean, they'll sit in a tree and use a knife and fall down on things, you know, that's crazy. But using a spear, um, a traditional spear in Warmera, I've had a girl not a bad shot, but I did experience, so we were out and I was with a load of boys in Wadda, and we were out spear hunting, making them all traditionally, and there was one kid, he was a little bit dumpy, he wasn't the prettiest kid in the world, but could he throw a spear? The the waves were rolling in. We had like one foot waves that were really clean and crisp in total clear water. And you'd get a glimpse of a mullet, which was 0.1 second, just a shimmer of a mullet flight swimming through the waves that rolls in. And he was hitting them in the head oh. and it just sparked off this competition. All the other boys that had used spears and stuff, but it turned out that this guy would go out with his grandfather And they would go to the beach and it was like, right, we need to eat, you know. He would just take him out and teach him the old way. And he was elite. And all the other kids, they were doing everything they can. I'm going to make a spear with 15 barbs and I'm going to make another one with just one big barb. And it was crazy. But yeah, he, one day he fed the whole camp, just him. You know, (laughs) there was a stingray, there was black bream. He was just slaying it, you know, just pulling in all these fish. What sort of,
0: do you they spearing them at?
3: Oh, like by range, really, Fifteen, twenty with a warmer hour. You can get a bit more distance out of it, you know, like the traditional methods for land was quite often during the burn-offs, um, unless you're doing spot and stalk traditionally, you know, during the burn-offs, you'd have things fleeing and they'd hit them on the wing, you know, and you can get some serious distance. Being accurate is another thing, but when you've been practicing from birth, it's uh, yeah. second nature. But yeah, you'd be amazed at how just adding a warmer hour to the equation, you can get some good range out of it.
0: Do you have to change the sort of technique in the way that you you throw the spear with a woomera?
3: Yeah, so I mean, you're like you're aiming forward and you're dragging down and creating that bit of a flick. It's hard to explain and it differs from person to person a little bit, I suppose. But mainly, you're just trying to keep it straight. You don't want to go off to the side because it causes a lot of um, problems. But it does, yeah. It changes your technique a little bit it's just getting the feel for it. i mean everything you when you first grab it you give it a little twitch because i mean you're still looking at archer's paradox when you're throwing a spear the the back of the spear is moving so you've you've got to think about the spine the spine weight of it is a is a factor and just giving it a little flex and doing it is yeah there's definitely an art form to it
0: Certainly, I mm-hmm. I would be keen to try to be honest that would be exciting some different
2: yeah yeah on going on spears i see maker and spearheads yeah, yeah, um, do it that, yeah. How do you find all that?
3: I actually not to flex, but I did pick it up really quickly. um The guy who taught me spent years doing it, and I did have the good fortune of having all the materials to hand. And a guy called Ryan Gill, who is very prolific. I mean, he's got a company that makes them, and you can buy them off him. And, He's really good. He goes out hunting bison and deer just with a, an atlatl. I mean, the American version, but it's, yeah, it's a spirit warmer. He's pretty good. And he is a spectacular napper. And he did a two-hour video of how to nap flint. there's the beginners and, and slightly intermediate. And I just drilled it. I had the time off and I had the ability to do it. And I picked it up pretty quickly. But it's, yeah, it's just a, a whole skill in itself. And I do a lot of bladesmithing i make my own knives and it's not really comparable as to which is easier and harder because it's a totally different discipline but it's crazy hard getting to just reading the stone you know like they are they say that every single stone is, has an arrowhead in it yeah. and if you can find it it's, it's like if you could if you'd find it or not it's your fault it's up to you You know, it's in there. It's just being able to read it because the amount of times you'll spend hours chipping away, chipping away at it, and then all of a sudden you tap the wrong bit, it splits in two, and it's ruined. Yeah, it'll be frustrating. Yeah,
1: Yeah, there must be a a bit of an art to it. I've watched a few people do it online, and there's a guy who does it. I I can't remember the name of him, but he just literally sits it on his lap and just goes to town on this thing, and it just looks easy, but – I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure there's an art form to it, <laughs> definitely.
3: It really is. I mean, it's, it's almost like layers of paper, and you've got to hit the platform to get – so the Hertzian cone, which the energy travels through in a cone shape, so you've got to hit it on just the angle that it ticks off a sheet, a tiny sliver of that stone, and it looks really easy because he's looking at it instantly, and he's reading the stone. He knows he's, he knows to hit that platform. And then, but it is like a puzzle. It's like doing a puzzle. That's what I enjoy about it is at, every time you hit it, you create a new, it's like playing chess. You know, you move a piece and it changes the board and then you've got to reread it and then you can win or lose the game depending on how you play. But I mean, some people, what would be amazing is getting to the level where you've got a chunk of stone, piece of flint or obsidian in your pocket, a few pieces of antler, and you just go out in the bush and you just go tap, 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 tap. You know, you every single throw, you pretty much are going to break the head but being able to produce everything just like that. Like I was looking into people who were the original traders. So the Aboriginal people, as they traded around the country, one person would go to the next community and just having the knowledge and the ability to take a couple of, a piece of rock, a couple of sticks, and you'd have a piece of ochre wrapped up in your hair and you're just going to walk into the bush for days, you know, and just having that ability is what I aspire to. Hmm. Yeah. To be able to go through that would be spectacular. You got a favorite
2: material to make the arrowheads with?
3: Oh, a nice piece of heat-treated chert for how it comes out. But yeah. the actual process—I mean, I really like working obsidian, volcanic glass. It just is a bit more forgiving when during the working. The raw chert, it's not been heat-treated, it lasts a bit better, is a bit more robust. But trying to get into it—I mean, it takes a lot of muscle, a lot of go to get through it, and then. You get quite aggressive and you're into it, and then you end up breaking it. So, yeah. I've done a done a lot of that.
0: How hard is it to find obsidian? Because I haven't, I don't think I've ever come across it to
3: be honest. Oh, it's, it's it doesn't exist in Australia. You only oh, go.
0: So
3: I get it imported in. That's there. Yeah, and the only place you really find really good flint, and I say really good, is like slightly slug par, is on the SA coast, and it's you're not allowed to take it because it's a natural thing that you're not supposed to mess with so obviously i wouldn't take any of that but if you were to go and get some that would be where you go and get it from
2: so stone a stone head arrowhead how hard is that to make
3: yeah it's pretty hard i mean to be honest it's as hard or as easy as you make it you can just smack a piece of rock against another rock and if it's a fine-grained rock you'll end up with Arrowhead. Interestingly, the Aboriginal people, their their technique wasn't like the Native Americans' technique. The Native Americans would bite face, so they would remove stone on platforms, and they'd work a piece. So there was a a bite face, like a a bevel on each side. Yep. Whereas the Aboriginals would find a rock with an edge like that oh, it's hard to explain and then they would hit that platform and the the head would come off in one piece mm. so it would be like a triangle shape and almost like a sushi knife that's got an edge and then a flat piece yep. you know yeah.
1: makes sense yep uh,
3: yeah and they would prefer that technique because when you've got when you've got that down you can have a core sample and then just knock off pieces and it's as, as easy as that really if you need a little knife to skin you just take your core piece and you smack off a sliver in the perfect spot and you've got a little skinning knife, and once you're done, you chuck it away. You need a bigger okay. piece because you're going to make a spear and warmer. You just smack off a, a larger piece just in the right spot, and then you've got that, and you just fix it with some gum resin, some uh, some sorry, some grass tree resin or a little bit of milk, and you're away. There you go. Sweet. There's a lot
0: to learn. It almost seems like our materials native <clears throat> to Australia aren't overly conducive for survival compared to somewhere like the States. You
1: gotta make the most of what you got, though. You, you yeah. do,
0: but it, yeah, just it, it almost sounds like it's just that slightly bit more difficult in Australia. Because- but is
2: <laughs> is that just because you hear a lot of American survival situations where you don't really sort of hear a whole lot of Australian survival situations? Since what you know,
0: well, the material seems more bountiful up there. Well, I don't know. I think it
3: definitely depends on where you are. I mean, there's Australia is so diverse. If I was have to survive somewhere i'd rather be up in the north you know up in the tropics of queensland up in the tropical north generally because i mean for instance there are some food sources that they have in the north and in the south that they don't even know about in the north because they don't bother because they don't need to like they they don't know or they've forgotten that it's a food source because they just wouldn't bother there's so many other great things there's a lot of fast growing plants that are medicinal and they bear fruit and they, it's just a much more conducive environment. The people who are really, really the most hardcore survivalists are the ones that made it, made it in Alice, you know, made it in the centre of the country in those deserts. Just surviving the flies.
0: I think the
2: sun yeah. would yeah. get me first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Five
3: yeah, minutes with flies, man.
0: I'd be like, ah, oh, get away.
1: Yeah, I'd burn to a crisp. It's <laughs> oh,
2: <that's> just food <laughs> flying around your head. <laughs> oh, yeah. hey. it,
3: there, it is for sure, yeah. <laughs> it's all protein. Oh, no. that no, was pass.
0: But <laughs> well, you can't say you've never eaten one. It's not been intentional, but well, in the army, when they'd land in your food, you'd be like, whatever. But if it happened in a restaurant, I'd be like, no, nah, this is terrible. Take it back. They're probably your best <laughs> flies to eat. They've been yeah. living well. Yeah. <laughs> cleaner.
1: I had my hopes and dreams shattered the other day because apparently that myth, well, I found out it's a myth now that it's quite common that people say you eat 15 spiders a year and you sleep because your mouth's open. Um, But it's become so widespread that it's just been accepted now. Yeah. But it's actually a myth. It's actually 20. 20.
3: (laughs) I just wonder, how would you do that experiment? You know, how would you be able to come up with that statistic? You'd have to have a cross-section of people say 100 people and you'd have to have have a camera on their mouth every night for at least (laughs) – a year to find out. I just think someone just made that up, didn't they? Yeah. It just went out.
1: yeah, everyone sort of just accepted it. Now it's become you know just okay, yep, cool. I think
2: it, I think it was good to tell your mate that we shit scared of spiders. Hundred percent, hundred percent.
1: Oh dear. All right. Well, let's flip this on its head a bit, uh, Kalen. What's your favourite movie?
3: Oh, I'm a little bit basic when it comes to that question. You know, I've not got something exotic. It was always Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino. That was always my favorite film when anyone asked me that was my favorite film. And then I had to really be honest and for my joy of watching it and how much I enjoyed it it's Kill Bill, which is another Tarantino film. Yeah. I like really love that film because I used to be into the old samurai movies and I love I mean you can call it plagiarism but I think it's a homage that he plays to those kind of films in all the the little easter eggs and the little knowledge The knowledge about it, brought David Carradine's uh, career back to life in the same way brought Travolta's career back to life in Pulp Fiction. Exactly my favourite director, but it's kind of a toss-up between those two films, I suppose.
0: I rewatched Pulp Fiction not that long ago and I'm like, what was I doing watching this when I was a lad? (laughs) 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 It's pretty old, isn't it? It is, to be honest. It is. There's yeah. Anyway. All right,
1: we'll move on. Next one is recommend a guest to be on this podcast, Callum.
3: Well, I think you should probably get Kyle on there at some point. That would be a good guest to have.
1: We would love She's that. Pretty- yeah, yeah, definitely.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Mate, you don't have to go any further. We'd, we'd happily yeah. have Kyle on Maybe we should set it up. <laughs> sure. well, I watched Blind Spot,
0: uh, talking about Kyle, I watched Blind Spot like, many, many years ago. And obviously, since following yourself and and your missus, uh, realizing that she was a stunt double, uh, the the main yeah. actor's stunt double, I'm like, oh my god! It just made the the series better for me. Actually, I was <laughs>
3: like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, well, she was Jamie Alexander's stunt double for Thor. Did huh? Thor with her, and yeah, carried on and did uh, the first season of Blindspot as well.
0: Mm. Did with blonde spot did she have to get all the tattoos done?
3: They just had like a, I think it was transfers they just put them on in the morning and yeah, you, know, you can wash them off in the evening.
0: Jeez, that would have taken a while. I'm not oh. sure if I've
2: seen blonde spot or not. I don't think so. That's not the one where she wakes up in a bag
0: yeah. in the street. Oh, yes, I have yeah, that's good, yeah, yeah. very good.
2: And I've all-
3: actually never watched. <laughs>
0: Well, all the tattoos, like yeah, mean something, can you know whether it's about her or it's a, a clue, clue about something else. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah,
1: yeah that's, that's actually really good, good. watching Caleb. You like it? Well, I'll better before we have Kai on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, the last the last question of our formatted ones, Caleb, is uh, what was your first rifle?
3: Um, it was a twenty-two, and it in the UK, so. In, the, in Australia, I think it's crazy that you have to have a license for pellet guns. But in the UK, if we're talking about um, any rifles, and I suppose air rifles are in there, that counts. I mean, yeah. you get some big ones that are pretty heavy. So in the UK, anyone can get one. And I think you have to be 18 now. But when I was a kid, anyone with 50 quid can go and get yourself a rifle. So I had a Virac Springer uh s ninety nine or p ninety nine i think it was called and it was a german bomb proof gun it was and it was my first introduction into rifle rifle shooting and being able to you know learn your pin pin putting your pins up and down and learn your ranges it was a beautiful experience just romping around in the woods with that it's great
1: that's that's kind of the progression i think most yeah. or a lot of people go on is you know, air rifle to twenty two to you know a centrefire after that, or a shotgun. So it's pretty common, I reckon. It is,
3: yeah, yeah. In the UK as well, there's a lot of people who've had questionable backgrounds, and I think one thing that's lovely about it, which is kind of similar to bow hunting in Australia, is no matter what you've done that might be slightly questionable in, in the eyes of the law, you can still have a profit, an efficient means of being able to go out and get your own food, mm. and there is no bow hunting in the UK, obviously. But when it comes to air rifle hunting, it's perceived as like a kid's toy, isn't it, really? Not a toy, but, you know, you're like an intro into hunting. But there are a lot of adults that take it really seriously. And they've got really great high-powered PCPs and going out and doing vermin control and hunting for a small game is their lives. They're really passionate about it.
0: Yeah. Is it is it a little bit bigger, the whole uh, air rifle sort of hunting because of the the land slot sizes sorry are, are, are smaller like you know i'm presuming they don't have thirty eight thousand hectare plots you know yeah of, of farmland. Sure. Like it's you know 20 acres or 40 acres or whatever
3: yeah because for that reason and also getting land which is signed off to use uh firearm is a is a whole different ball game it's not just a case of Oh, my friend's got some land, and it's private land, and I've got a gun. It needs to be signed off, say not signed off by a firearms officer, to be land that you can use to to shoot on, and you've got to be like a certain distance, which is quite a far distance away from any public buildings or public roads. It's a different kettle of fish. But when you've got an air an air rifle, sorry, you can uh, you just have to be fifty meters away from the road, I think. Yeah, huh. mm. with oh, that.
2: With that signing off the land, is that signed off for the shooter to be able to shoot on the land or is that signed off on the landowner for shooters able to shoot on kind of thing?
3: Yeah, it's signed off by the government that the land's okay to be shot on. Okay, so that's I'm more not, of the
2: property owner sort of side of things and, and multiple yeah. shooter wouldn't have to get the same paperwork?
3: No, no. So that's – as soon as the land's signed off and you – because the whole legality of getting a gun is crazy. I mean, I've got no criminal record whatsoever. I – was working at a... Sh- when I went for my license, I was working at a shoot. I had, like... Uh, I was the poster boy for someone who should have gone, and they still made you jump through so many hoops, and, like, they, it's, it's a really big deal. So just getting... And it, the, as you said, if you want something else, if you want suppressors, if you want, you know, extended mags, extended anything, anything, it's a real hullapaloo. You know, they want to ask questions and go through everything and to get your firearms certificate you need to have land that's been signed off by a firearms officer that you're going to shoot on and the, everyone's saying that you're going to do it so it's, it's part of that as well that you need yeah. to have it
1: mm. all boxed off Sounds next level which is kind of why I mean something we're very passionate about is the firearms laws here and fighting some of the ones that are ridiculous yeah. <laughs> so I mean yeah far out that's- We have it
0: okay at the moment but if if, if we don't stand united and 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 you know have a voice that'll it'll be eroded real quick mm. definitely yeah um, in Australia unfortunately but mm. talking about a first firearm uh what about your first bow Are you were trad bowman recurve compound
3: well I'm I've gone back to I've gone to trad when I first started shooting archery it was traditional you know I wanted to be Robin Hood when I was a kid I started off making them when I was really small and stepped up and then got myself a proper recurve and it was one of those ones kind of the ones you use in school you know because a big clubby one it was a takedown and then when it came to hunting I then got into the kind of compound bone John Deadly like uh Joe Rogan going out and like looked at those people and their hunting experiences I was really concerned with being proficient I really wanted to be able to harvest cleanly from further away if necessary and I got into compound shooting, and because of a loan, because they wouldn't let me have a compound, I was like, "Oh Christ, I need to get myself a recurve and get back into it." And then I got back and I got myself uh, a one piece and started shooting recurve, and then really started looking into it. Got really obsessed with form and everything like that. You know, I wanted to get as proficient as I could in a short period of time, but now I'm just getting this compound itch again. You know, I've, <laughs> I'm loving shooting trad, but I really. I went to the archery shop. I went to archery supplies in Adelaide the other day and went past a, a nice uh, PSE and I was like, "Oh, it's like, uh, <laughs> how you doing?" Yeah? <laughs>
1: That's a familiar feeling.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I think I need to bite the bullet on that and just well, buy one. We'll we'll definitely get get into to bow hunting a bit more and obviously compound's probably the start, but trad interests me a lot, especially to like bow fish. Like I, I think mm-hmm. it would be awesome fun, but we have, none of us have done a, lot, a whole heap of, of bow hunting to be honest.
3: Yeah. I think just the, the sense of accomplishment when you go bow hunting, also the sense of defeat. I mean, there's a reason why they call it the struggle stick because knowing full well that you, at first, when you start bow hunting and knowing full well, you would have harvested that animal if you had a gun. That's frustrating. Yeah. But when you manage to creep in and you've, you have picked the wind perfectly and you've picked your positioning and your stalks perfect and you get in there, And then you miss or, you know, there's something about it. You like what I get quite often is if I don't feel like my draw cycle is perfect, then I'll let down. And in that moment, you've only usually got a window of seconds before. Because, you know, a lot of people, I think they don't have a lot of successes in bow hunting because they just follow animals around. You know, the animals moving into the wind, you're behind the animal and you're never going to get yourself in a position. So choosing when to... Break off and use cover and, and try and bank around it while you're in a quartering wind and get around. I mean, it's a serious art form and you're it's a really time sensitive. And not having your shit together is the worst thing. And being a trad bow hunter is hmm. is just so much going on
0: with the trad. When you're shooting the bow, are you trying to draw and release as quick as possible? And is that just because of the the pounds that you're holding back?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of argument with that. I mean, personally, I just have a cycle that I like to go through and I find there's there's a sweet spot because I don't I don't know how it how people do hold it prone, hold it and be able to aim and fix on the spot. I'm a bit of a floater, like I kind of figure of eight float and then I pick my moment. But as long as I do everything like I like to pre-aim, aim first anchor, focus on my spot, come to my second anchor release and just getting that sweet release and everything going smoothly in practice is hard enough but everything going smoothly when you're watching an animal and you know you've only got a short period of time it's um it's a lot it's it's, it's really cool it's a really cool experience for sure
1: well, I think Thanks. Calum, you're probably the perfect person to ask so I don't know if you you know but the the labor government here in South Australia committed. To banning bow hunting in this state uh-huh. for for reasons that it's you know inhumane and there's been a f- couple of you know bad cases in the media where someone some idiots fired a target tip into a kangaroo or a seal or something stupid which is you know again the the minority idiots ruining it for everyone else. But what's your what's your take on the the unethical sort of argument about you know putting an animal down because obviously you're quite passionate okay. about doing it ethically.
3: I couldn't disagree more. I mean, there is an element. You've got to be realistic. There is an element of the animal. A things not going as you would like them to go. Mm-hmm. But what we have to do is look at things in the reality of the world, you know, and that is, that is a byproduct of hunting. That's a byproduct of being alive. And we put human parameters on animals the animal is almost certainly going to die of a few things, and none of it is in bed next to their little fawns that are all watching them go past peacefully in their sleep. They're going to die of predation, pestilence, or some freak accident, which is going to be distressing and painful, and is going to be the end of their life. I'd argue that the dispatch, even an inhumane one, is not as terrible as what their initial when their outcome would be. But that's not our job is to be as humane as possible. And with a solid shot from a bow, I would argue, and I'd like to do some tests on cortisol, plasma in the blood, which uh, which analyzes stress levels. I think that a good shot from a bow hunter is the most, most ethical kill you can get because with a gun, they've done some tests and found that compared to a deer that's killed at an abattoir, their stress levels are like 10% of what they are when they're dispatched and there's all the... Like uh, stuff surrounding it, but with a bow, there's no sound. Quite often, you'll find that people. I've heard people say that when you first kill an animal with a bow, you'll get it on the second shot. Very, quite often, people totally miss their first shot. But the animal, don't, like the amount of times that I've taken a shot and it's been off, and I've missed. And then the, the animal's just like, there's no idea what's going on. No idea. You get ample opportunity for a second shot. If you get that first shot, they don't even feel it. Their instinct to flight, their flight instinct kicks in and they're running and their blood's pumping out and they're dead before they even know what's happened. Mm-hmm. There's no, um, there's no stress. And it's, it's the same response they'd have if a leaf hit the floor in a loud manner next to them. You know, they're triggered to run and they don't understand they're hit. They get a bit woozy. They go unconscious. They bleed out in no time.
4: Yeah.
3: It's, I think it's the best way for, in so many ways. You know, shooting from helicopters is very efficient and it's a great way of clearing animals out of areas that are detrimental. <clears throat> but shooting something from a helicopter is, like, is arguably much, much worse than someone doing it with a burn.
1: Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Same. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a really good description of it, actually. Yeah. Let's, we, st- I mean, we're finding it. There's plenty of groups that are, they're fighting it, but I really don't want to, to see it get up because it's just another, you know, thing we're allowed to do currently that's getting eroded another liberty that's taken away. And um, I actually had a, a really good conversation with one of our listeners who who brought to light the fact that, I mean, without, and again, without getting tinfoil hat about it, he was like, well, the government actually doesn't want you to be able to provide for yourself. So these skills of being able to go out and hunt for your own meat, the government would rather you just, you know, suckle on the teat of – of what they can provide and be reliant on that rather than possess the skills to do it for yourself. What's your take on that? Because you're very passionate about being able to provide food for yourself.
3: Yeah, I mean, we need to understand that I don't know how far it goes and I, I definitely don't believe there is some ruling shadow government in a really organised form that people believe. I just don't think it's that. it's more of an organic um, oligarchy that runs the world, but it does and in in a lot of cases people can't even store rainwater you know they don't want you storing rainwater anyone who tries to live off grid if you create your own power supply and you're not reliant on the government at all it was happening in england they'll find a way of you know you manage to grow crops and sell those crops enough that you can pay the land baron the government for your council tax and you get by and you manage to hunt and forage and you're off grid and they find a way of like cutting you back down they want you reliant on the system. Mm. So they've got no desire for you to be independent in a similar way that an overbearing parent doesn't want their child going off into the world and doing whatever they want to do. There's it's like with the gun laws, you know, and they're, they're always taken away and they're very rarely given back. In fact, the only time I've ever heard of gun laws being given back is just at the moment they've given them back in Brazil. People are allowed to have guns again. They've got a new, um, Republic right-wing, I suppose you'd call him, guy who's cleaning up the streets and he's giving back the gunnels. I've never heard of it happening before. Mm. But whenever it's taken away, it's always taken away. Usually it's tyranny, but it's never, the good of the pers- the people is never taken into consideration, I don't think. You know, it's always for the best, for the, for the best of, of everybody, it's, pers- it's supposed to be. It's the way that it's put forward, but I'm not buying it because there's never any due calls, I don't think.
1: Fair comment, I think.
3: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Jeez. Um, Who knows? I I don't want to start down. down (laughs) Yeah, it's a rabbit hole. It is an
1: absolute rabbit hole for sure. Well, maybe we switch back to rifles then. Do you have a a favourite at the moment that you sort of go to, calibre or or type of rifle?
3: I currently, yeah. So I've been using uh, a Steyr Manalika, which is two two three does everything you know it's just I can chuck it chuck it anywhere I can throw it off a cliff and I know that those sites are going to be level it's just a composite stock does its job it's beautiful um want to go out I'd like to do some more deer stuff so I'm looking at getting a 308 something with a bit more of a classic look about it I like a wooden stock I like that kind of ED leather strap over your shoulder style. I know that having a good modern composite stock is going to be the best way to go for the life of the gun. But it's not always about that. Yep. True.
0: How do you go traveling so much with your your rifles? Do you do you always take them with you, or is that something that?
3: No, I only take the. So I, we've got a custom back cab on our ute. That's got um, two cases. One one fits a compound bow perfectly, and the other one fits a recurve or a series of recurve bows perfectly and they're locked but they also the compound one is the exact same size and i've got some um inserts that take broken down shotguns and the one that takes the recurve bow has also got the inserts that take rifles so they're just locked lock cabinets in the back of the unit yeah sweet Perfect. custom made is pretty cool <laughs>
0: and you'll just take them when you when you know you're going to an area that you know you're gonna hunt you just you wouldn't leave them in the back of your car. Surely?
3: No, hundred percent. No, no, no. Only when I'm going from A to B, and once I've, if I'm going somewhere, it's going out deep in the bush, you know, and I'm only person there for. Yeah. Far, See, yeah.
0: I only ask because I'd like to do a a little bit of travelling one day around Australia, and obviously hunting, and I'd like to take my firearm with me. But I know obviously some firearms aren't legal in some states where they are in others, and two, if you're just travelling. You know, no one can give you a sound answer on, yeah, it's fine to travel with it in, you know, locked up in the back of your car if you're moving through an area and say you, get, you stop in for a week somewhere on your way to hunt. Technically, you're on your way to hunt but you've just decided to stop in. So, you know, is that legal? Is it not? No one really can yeah. give a definitive answer on this, to be honest. I think
3: as long as it remains on your person, and you aren't just doing it casually. It's all situations alter cases, mm-hmm. and it's so different. I mean, if you're in the NT, they just whatever, you know. I've just found out that helicopter pilots, because I befriended one, helicopter pilots can concealed carry a pistol. They're one of the only people that are allowed to concealed carry huh. uh pistols. <laughs> yep. What? For what reason? Yeah, <laughs> why? Just in I case think the argument terrorists? is because they're in... The- They're in confined space, and if they went down in an area that had a crocodile in it, or they had to put like uh, set down in an area with a crocodile in it, they've got something that they can dispatch it with. But I feel like someone who had a lot of money and a helicopter license and wanted to conceal carry permit, and he he had the ear of someone in government. That's what I think. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I think you're onto something there. (laughs)
2: Because otherwise, yeah, if, if you're fishing in a boat, in the Northern Territory yeah, then you con- should be able to still carry <laughs> you should, well
0: on right. in yeah. that in that very same style of thinking you should. Yeah. But I know that the croc catchers like Matt Wright and, and all that, a couple of their his his lads are allowed to they've got a permit to carry a um, open carrier pistol uh, whilst they work with the croc catching. One of them's got like this big gold desert eagle I'd don't know why, but, but hey, it <laughs> does it? looks cool. Why yeah. not?
3: Fifty caliber, you need it, you know, of course. Yeah. Well, if you don't need it, you want it, so. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: no, I don't think I could afford the rounds
3: yeah. right <laughs> would be five bucks around. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Uh, Carolyn, we're going to ask: Is there a hunting trip in Australia that you want to that you're planning, or you want to go on? Like, is there a species?
3: Yeah. Well, it's more the form. So I'm getting really into long form hunts with minimal kit. So I'm just getting into, so taking a live straw and trying to drink naturally. And I've really, really, I haven't got a trad bow deer yet. So got to get that on the books, focusing on fallow. So I've got myself a bleater. I've even gone to the lengths of getting myself a climbing tree stand. I didn't realize that it's quite hard to get up gums with a, with a climber because they can (laughs) slip because they haven't got the bark. Uh... That was before I ordered it from the States and <laughs> Cabela shipped it in. It cost me loads of money, but yeah, I've got one. So that's, uh, that's on the cars and I'm really focusing on that. So I'm nice. going to go deep and you know, the, the deeper you go, the less stressed the animals are. I get stories of friends on a bow hunt on private land during the rut and they've got bullets whizzing over their head because they're in a ghillie suit in the bush, you know, it's uh. so yeah, I'm just really focusing on those kind of hunts. I've got a couple, couple planned, Gonna go out in Vic. Um, obviously is a great place because you get to still hunt private land. Or, um, um, public, publicly. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I did try my luck. I was up in the NT and i I had a permission to go after a buffalo, but I didn't get down on that. Unfortunately, didn't manage to get around to that. So that's one I've got. To, I've got to go back up there and got unfinished business with a buffalo up there. <laughs> with you, bike. Yeah, for sure.
1: Well, I have to ask, um, you've, you've done a fair bit in Australia, Calum. Uh Have you hunted much internationally? And then the same question again, like, is there a dream hunt internationally?
3: Yeah, not really done much. I mean, Africa is where it's at, you know. That's my focus. I was considering – well, I say I was considering. Kai was considering doing a naked and afraid that was in Africa, and I – then was considering doing one as well because it was kind of just if I could go to Africa make that the stipulation so I could then stay on and do a hunt um somewhere like Botswana or something like that going for I mean the big one would be uh buffalo kick buffalo like you know that's the ultimate you know if you're gonna talking about the dangerous element the skill element that it takes kill most people second most people the animal that kills the second most people in the bush up there yep but uh yeah, something like Gainsbock or Kudu. Kudu's always been a big one on the list for me. But just generally doing that kind of Fredbear experience and going out there and hunting Africa would be amazing. I reckon. Yeah, it would.
1: We've Definitely. had a few guests on that have said the Cape Buff is just the pinnacle for them of, of hunting experience. And like you said, the danger element, the difficulty, just, yeah. So, I mean, I'd love to give it a go, but I think it's – bit down the track for my progression. <laughs> oh, it's pretty pricey. Can't be You're too far down to
2: the track, though. You're still getting slower. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, you mentioned that you've you've got some ties between you and your partner to, in the States. Was there anything in the States that you'd you'd chase?
3: Oh, 100%. I mean, well, I've always really wanted to try blueberry black bears since I found out that the, the early settlers would shoot the bucks for their skins and they'd go after bear for their meat. Also it's got that danger element to it too. But those ones that eat the blueberries, apparently, they're just just the best. So yeah. getting up there and getting out into the Yukon. Like that's one of my big one of my biggest dreams is pack horse hunting. Been touching up on my riding skills. Uh, I've got myself some really cool Nashville cowboy boots that I <laughs> got me for my birthday. And uh, yeah, getting up there and getting on some horses and going out into the Yukon. I mean Canada more so just because of the rem- remoteness you know as you're saying about unpressured and in that case never seen a human before you know being in a real environment where you're super remote and working symbiotically with animals i've always loved hunting with animals like uh used to keep ferrets and hunt with them and i had a lurcher i used to run rabbits and stuff with it was uh great so being out there just with relying on the horse to get you by and yeah that would be amazing
2: with because obviously we've gone talk a lot lot about hunting and you seem to sort of tend to more of a traditional style. What about fishing?
3: Yeah, fly fishing was my one of my big loves, you know, actually making the flies yourself. I was never great, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you can uh get pheasant tail nymph knocked up if I've got uh got the stuff and just going out in that kind of more hunting style of fishing because in the UK there's a lot of course fishing and I spent a lot of time when I was a kid in a bivvy and a little open fronted bivvy sat there freezing my arse off, hoping that something was going to bite and just, yeah, it's not really my style, you know, with a pole rod, trying to pull it in and take it apart. As you, you try to grab a little perch off the end, it just stopped my style. Yeah. So uh, getting into waders, getting into the water, seeing a bit of shadow in the corner that you know, that there's going to be a trout in, um, it's an enjoyable experience even if you don't catch it. You know, that's one thing I love about getting out there, going bow hunting. Some of the best hunts, you come in with nothing. You know, it's just the experience.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. Did you try any, uh, like, uh, fishing for barrow with lures in the in the NT? I mean, that's a bit more of an active hunting style of fishing.
3: sure, yeah, oh, loads, yeah. I've done quite a bit of barrow hunting with lures, had some success, nothing too crazy, you know, a couple of little ones. What um reason? it was not this time of year for it, so I wasn't getting much. But when I went up there before, like we do a little bit of uh fishing with did some spear fishing. I never got a barra, but yeah, I've tried some spear fishing for barra. It's getting that refraction right, you know, that's where I'm not quite in it yet, where you, you don't aim for it, you just aim slightly down to catch the catch the water properly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's Big barrel with a, with a spear and warmer, that would be definitely my dream, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> that would be, yeah,
0: quite a chase.
2: To I was trying to think about the way of, like, if you're in a survival situation and making your own sort of fishing tool, but, yeah, a spear would just cover that, yeah, I feel.
3: Yeah, I made a really cool one, and I actually used a, a barrow that I caught. I used the barrow barb. I attached it with some milk to use that as the barb to catch a fish. I thought there's no greater insult than catching a barrel with the bar with another <laughs>
0: barrow.
3: Yeah. that worked work pretty well.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like murdering someone with a human bone. Irony. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 Wow. I've seen uh, guys catch barrow using a spoon head. They've, they've just put some trebles on a spoon pretty much and just thrown it in the water and boom. Yeah. It's ridiculous, I'll go for anything those things, <laughs> yeah,
3: well there predators yeah. what
0: yeah. color lures were you using when you're in dark uh
3: white ones, some of the pink green like multicolored ones uh I find work, white works quite well, uh it just seems like them, but it's just one of those things I think if they're feeding if they're in the mood for it, like you say, if you've got a spoon, you could have a bubble gum wrapper and just catching that glimpse of light they're they're all over it. It just really depends.
0: Was that a double gum wrapper? Bubble gum. B- oh, bubble, bubble gum. gum. <laughs> double gum.
1: <laughs> double bubble. <sighs> gum. I love that video, the bloke catching, um, I think it was bass with a rat lure, and he was chucking it up a drain pipe, and he was catching bass. A rat's lure? A rat. A rat. It was literally a rat. It looked like a rat. Yeah. So that was his lure. He was chucking up a drain pipe and was catching bass with it.
2: I've seen videos of guys using a bottle <laughs> like a can <canned> tab. <laughs> And that just, I guess, creates glint and it's enough for the fish to go for it. It's got to
1: be enough to attract them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to claim to be an expert (laughs) by any means, by any stretch of the imagination, but it'd certainly be fun to make your own.
0: Yeah. There's something about fishing in in the northern states that's just exciting because it's, yeah, it's plentiful. Not like down here in
3: South Australia. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's, yeah. 90%
0: boredom.
3: (laughs) I've literally been out and gone out in the evening and the water's moving because there's so many mullet. In fact, a guy that was up there with me went out and I couldn't be bothered to go out. I was really tired, went to bed and he went out and literally a mullet jumped on the shore. He was with someone else who corroborated the story. So he wasn't on his own (laughs) because it sounded like a lie. But a mullet (laughs) jumped up because it was moving so much. A mullet jumped out and he put it on his hand line. And chucked it out and pulled in the barrel, just like that. You know, like free live bait. But the amount of times I've been out and you just look out of the water, you can see big fish jumping, and the water's moving with a little fish, and there's crocodile eyes in the corner over there. It's just a different world, you know. Fishing up there to fishing down here is yeah, there's definitely much more. It's much easier for sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Josh has been promising to take us up to Down for a while, but
3: uh... mate, oh, we have get we have time
0: it. off and we'll, know, <laughs> and we'll stop in and we'll pick up. Yeah, that's it's probably more our way.
1: fault
3: than me.
1: Let's do it. <Yep>. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Well, I think we have to say a big thank you to you, Kalen, for being on. Any questions for us?
3: I don't know. What's your sign? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what kind of hunting do you guys prefer? You don't do much bow hunting. What do you do?
1: Oh, uh, we usually rifles and, and for deer. Um so there's a few private spots here in South Australia that we go, but we do like to get across to Vic and hunt public land. That's a, I think there's almost a bit more of a thrill of the chase there because there's quite often parcels of land that you don't don't know. You sort of got to familiarise yourself and put the put the work in to, to get to know them and find the sweet spots. So yeah, apart from that, bit of you know, foxes, rabbits, um trying to on.
0: touch a little bit of trapping, snares and, and we've we've tried using conner bear traps and things like that. For, for oh, rabbits, yeah. that's that that was actually pretty exciting. The first time we put the Connor bear trap up, we weren't expecting anything, and we caught a, a rabbit, so <laughs> we we're like, Oh, yeah, it works great. Um, yeah, but, wow, yeah, so pretty, pretty, pretty novice at, at that sort of stuff, other than rifle hunting, I think. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess we sort of rifle's been our focus years, like a few years ago, we used to sort of
2: mainly do spotlighting and stuff like yeah, that, and then but sort yeah. of, yeah. We sort of all got sort of a bit bored of it a little bit, so we sort of moved into deer and tried to focus on that more. Mm. And you get you get a better reward from deer as well.
1: I so. think the, the beauty about hunting is there's quite often a progression that people go on where, you know, you start off as a kid, you know, you know shooting rabbits and whatever, then you might progress to foxes and, you know, deer or whatever else. But, you know, and you mentioned it, Calem as well about, you know, rifle to compound bow to trad bow to, you know, getting up a tree with a knife and jumping out on the things you know (laughs) to you know blow dart or something like that you know it's just it's a progression so and everyone's at a different level which is the beauty of it you have a chat to a guy and they've been hunting for for years and whatever method and it's it's a beautiful beautiful thing to see where everyone's at and and have those discussions and the main thing is just being out there in nature and enjoying it and being able to provide meat for your family i think that's what we're most passionate about is is uh ethical hunting and and providing for our families as well that meat
3: yeah, I think that's what we're about. Yeah. Definitely. What's your, what's your take on trophy hunting? How do you feel about that aspect of it?
0: Meat first. Meat, meat first hmm. before trophy. And there's no trophy that any of us have taken uh, that we, y- you know, we wouldn't have taken the meat from. Oh no, you're not going to leave the. You're not not going to yeah. just take the rack and yeah, no. walk off with it without the rest. I think yeah. there's a pretty big shift in in this the hunting community anyway with with the whole trophy hunting stigma i mean it's it's done yes but all the guys that do it still take the meat most definitely well maybe not all of them That's certainly most of the ones
1: well all the ones we certainly know but i think it's becoming a bit more widespread than it than it maybe used to be where people would just you know shoot a trophy animal lop off its head and away they go it's um it's definitely an important thing to to utilize the animal as much as you can so
0: what's respecting the the animal mm. um Really?
2: Uh, I, I reckon the trophy is just a nice little bonus to, you know, taking that sort of kill. You get the meat from it and then you get something to sort of, well, as you see up here, it's something to remember it by. Mm.
4: Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, for sure. I used to always have a stigma surrounding trophy hunting because I thought that was the way that I'd separate myself, you know. People who trophy hunt, they're the people, like the great white hunters who've just done it for that, and I – I'm more of a purist and I'm just in it because I want to feed myself. But the more I'm coming around to the idea of, you know, it's when you're so passionate about something, then adding an element where, you know, the competition element is, I think I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Mm -hmm. I am coming around to it and unfortunately, I think the world's going the other way that we're, you know, we're we're repelled by the concept of it because like making a sport or Mm -hmm. as such of hunting. But if you're given, if you've got like, for instance, in the States, if you've got a tag, and you're going to have a season and you're going to take the risk of potentially wasting the $500,000 you spent on a tag because you want to go for a bigger animal, then more power to you, I suppose. You know? Yeah. That's what you I mean, you can, they've got the spoilage fines. You know, if you don't take, it's different from state to state, but if you don't take at least like um, legs yeah. and straps, then you get fined and the way they go about it, it's great.
0: They've done that yeah. with duck hunting in Victoria, actually. You have to take a, uh- uh, utilise, I think, 90% of the duck or something uh, by law now, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. It uh, just holds hunters a bit more accountable if there's a bit
2: of law around it. And yeah, well, there's a lot more usable sort of meat and areas on an animal that the
1: general person wouldn't perceive to be
0: edible or usable. Mm. Mm. Yeah.
1: So. It's interesting. We had um, we had Jay Allen Smith on the podcast and he's he's – I think got over 300 different species of animals, so I mean if you could I don't know accuse someone of being a trophy hunter, you could say him, and we asked him about trophy hunting um, and sort of said to him, Well, you know, where do you go once you've got something like, cool, you've ticked that box, you move on like what's what keeps driving you? You've got literally every species that people go after, and he's like, well, you, you get that luxury then you, you get something, and then you can choose not to pull the trigger. All the rest of the yeah. times you're out there until you know. Okay, there's there's a bigger one or, or whatever. You can still go on that progression, um. And you know, and then you can pass on and move move to the joy of showing someone else and taking someone else on the hunt. So there's always somewhere to, to move. Even if you get, he everything. does
0: use the meat, though.
1: Yeah, I mean he yeah. he does use the meat. I'm not saying he's a trophy hunter, but I'm saying he's you know accused of it or you know mm. portrayed badly. <laughs> because he's got so many different species. But I I really thought his take on it was pretty cool in that you don't just get the biggest of something and then hunting's dead for you. There's still a progression you can go on. So it's sort of a never-ending pursuit, really.
0: It it is, but let's face it, food's life and food is what brings people together and really (laughs) – what I'm trying (laughs) to say is is that – the, the eras of trophy hunters, I can't see that that any in well very little eras of, of trophy hunting where they haven't utilized
1: the meat. Well, if you go it, on a trophy hunt in Africa, the meat's going to the villages. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah.
0: How long has that been going for? Probably a lot longer than what we think. You know, we have a really bad culture around food here in Australia. You know, your food culture is going to a restaurant where some of the best barbecues and things i've had we've all gotten together with uh, you know a whole heap of other lads that hunt and you all bring something that you you've shot, shot yourself that year, yeah you know and mm. you get together and you you cook it up and try different ways and some people add salt some people don't and you know make the fa- food taste nice sorry that was a dig at caleb because he doesn't <laughs>
1: use salt
2: who doesn't use salt? Your opinion doesn't
1: use I, enough salt. I use salt. Josh just uses excessive I mean, amounts of salt because he has salt. no taste buds. But that's a whole other digression. <laughs> I think I think what people miss out on who don't don't shoot and prep their own meat is that sense of community, like it used to be hundreds of years ago, where you know you get the whole community would come together and and that whatever species that had been harvested, you're all doing that food prep and the butchering yourself and. You know, everyone in that community was sharing in that process and reaping the rewards for it. And as hunters, we get that experience still. You mm. get your mates around, you make sausages together, you know, you you divvy up the meat, you share it out amongst your friends and family. And it's it's a really beautiful thing. So
2: Yeah, yeah. As you said oh, yeah. before, like just getting that sort of harvest sort of becomes a celebration rather than a something to look bad upon, I guess.
3: Yeah. I said on, I, I, something I said on a Hunter Connections podcast the other day, the other month was, um he asked me to explain the feeling I get about hunting. And I put it as, it's like our instinct, the same way that, you know, like when a, a gazelle's born, its instinct is to get up on those legs and run. I mean, I'm sure that animal... It's coming from the trauma of just being born or rather chill out, but something in it tells it innately to run. And that's because through the generations, through its DNA, it's passed on that information and it doesn't have a knowledge. It's a feeling. It's a feeling that it needs to do that sort of thing. Same reason as a snake jumps out of an egg and instantly wants to go hunting and so on and so forth. And I said that the feeling I get when I harvest my own food and when I give it to the other people and that sense of community, it's the same as like when I look into a fire and I can't stop staring at the fire. There's nothing about it which is particularly alluring. But what it is, is it's in my DNA. My ancestors made fire. And that fire, they used to cook their food or to get warm or to keep predators away. And that feeling locked in their brains, in their DNA, is come through me. Trying to explain how I feel when I go hunting and when I feed people is like trying to explain staring into the fire, which is something we can all relate to. And there is this amazing sense of accomplishment which... I mean, especially as men, you don't get enough of in this day and age. Those cues, we don't go to war, or definitely not in the same way we used to. We don't have all these typically archetypal, you know, masculine ways of feeling yep. accomplished. But that is one way that you you can't deny it. It's like the best way, not just as a man, as a human. Yep. Mm. That sense of primitive accomplishment is spectacular. It makes food taste. Like that, when you first go hunting, you take a little bit of organ or strap meat, you put it on the fire, It doesn't taste like – it doesn't taste like anything else. It's Mm. just – it's an individual flavour to itself. The flavour of victory is delicious.
0: Sure is. It's well put. It is. I'm
2: definitely (laughs) going to use that comparison with fire and hunting and just – No, you go for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a good one. I think in terms of people who sort of dismiss hunting or say they could never do it, I I really respect people who – because I don't, I don't believe you can say something's not for you until you've tried it, mm. or at least when it's hunting, gotten right up to the point of pulling the trigger on something. And there's people out there that have, that have got to the point of pulling the trigger, and they said they couldn't do it, but at least they got to that point. Versus someone who said, "Ah, hunting's terrible. I couldn't do it. It's not for me." So I think everyone should at least try it. And we—that's the other thing we're very passionate about—is taking new hunters out. And getting more people involved in it. And um, there's so many people, once they actually try it and realise what it's all about and what goes into it, all the prep work, all the work starts after you've actually, you know, mm. dispatched the animal. That's when the work starts. Yes. And they go, wow, there's so much more to you. You're not just some redneck who goes out and you know, shoots whatever he sees. Yeah. So that education process of taking people out and, and teaching them is something we're definitely passionate about. We don't get to do it enough, but- there's not enough mm. hours in the day and free time but yeah it's um it's definitely an amazing thing to be able to teach someone else as well
3: 100% yeah i agree i love that aspect of getting new hunters involved and explaining to them the realities because when anyone wants to get into it i don't think they understand quite often it's perceived that the actual killing of an animal is the objective when actually it's just a byproduct mm. that actual it's something that you deal with emotionally and there's a great experience but all leading up to it is the practice is the knowing the terrain is the getting there is the preparing your kit and being able to accomplish it and then as soon as that that's done you deal with that for a few seconds and it's like oh now shit i've got to break it down and all of that that gets involved in packing it out and then and thereafter you know the real hard work it's such an it's such a massive thing and i've it's a lovely experience to as it unravels for you and to do that to somebody else is Amazing. There's a a woman who just recently was told told me that she just wanted to get into it, and a friend of hers had given her a bow. And I'm like, that's cool, that's amazing. And she realised that I had a wealth of knowledge about it. We got into it, found out that someone had given her a bear kinetic or something that was like fifty pounds bottom end. You know, it was like fifty to seventy range, and she's like four for eight. And I'm like, I tell you what, <laughs> I think you might need to get a different bow. You know, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just like put her on to the archery shop, gave her, uh, suggested what both were to get and now she's like mad into it. And I also felt there's, an, I know another woman who's really into it and they live close by and like the community that comes around it as well. It's one of the few things where everyone's so keen to share and learn and teach and brings people together. Like very few hobbies do. There's usually quite an elitist mentality surrounding it. There's usually... You know, a lot of, and there can be a bit of infighting between trad and companion, whatever, but it's usually just, you know, it's, it's pretty surface level. On yeah. um, Underneath, everyone just loves the fact that everyone else is engaged in loving it. Yeah.
0: It's, it's great. So how do you go with the antis that, that you come
3: across? I don't, I don't. It's just because of what I do and who I am. I don't really encounter any of it. I kind of, I blur into that realm of Maasai hunter, you know, like there's that. Because I don't have the, the persona of the great white hunter, people are really understanding, and I actually think that when you start getting into it, people can't argue with you. But fortunately, I don't engage with a lot of like crazy hardcore vegans. They just don't seem to. And I do, and I do really enjoy it. I mean, on the one level, I like people to have. A debate with people because i'm constantly trying to test my perspective and i like people to have an opposing argument but also because i just know my stance point is really solid i know that i i have gone through this enough to know that i'm gonna absolutely ruin them in a debate so i just i welcome it but it just rarely happens you know? it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's cold.
1: well i reckon uh kylan we could talk to you for hours but yeah. uh the hour is getting upon us, so uh, I think it's about time it's- we leave it there. So how how can people find you on Instagram um, and, and wherever else?
3: I'm on Instagram, Caleb MoGrady Just my name, uh, Caleb Moe on Instagram. It's the best place to find me.
0: Easy. Cool. Well, and, and your many shows. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: yeah, and you can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> SBS or catch up if you want to watch the show is on SBS and – Discovery, if you're in the States, and it's on uh, NITV. It plays, it was on NITV, like, so I think it just finished airing last week, and it's on Netflix if you fancy popping to the UK.
1: Beautiful. All right. Well, everyone, Genius. jump on and check out Calum's work and also his partner Kai as well. She's a pretty interesting individual as well. So, yeah, we've got to say a big thank you to you, mate, for being on and giving up your time. You've been very generous. So cheers, heaps. Loved it. Thanks, mate. Yeah, awesome. thank you
0: very much. It's been a great it's chat. Been. We'll have cool. to catch up one day, have some, some beers or – Go out for a, a trad buy hunt or something.
1: Love <laughs> that. <laughs> Let's do it. For sure. <laughs> Sounds good, closer. mate. You can put us all to shame. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Tune in next week for another episode. And uh, big thanks to Calum for tonight. Cheers, mate. We'll uh, catch you soon. Cheers,
3: dude. So take it easy.
0: Will do. Right. Right. Catch you later. Catch, catch you me. later,
3: ladies and gentlemen. we <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah. sighs> Your gotcha. brain's
0: not been working gotcha. the last few weeks.
1: When has your brain been working? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, dude and dudettes, Josh here. Do you find it hard to keep your long hard barrels free from gun STDs? Maybe you need a clean out of your bore. If this is you, jump on over to highcaliber.com.au and use the promo code SENDITMATE to receive a 10% discount on all your gun cleaning needs. And remember, it's sexy to support Australian made products. Everyone here at Senate, mate, uses high calibre, and we can promise you that it'll keep your firearms free from those pesky gun STDs.